This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday to you. Boy, I mean, it's happy for a lot of us. Uh, President Trump loses one of his top advisors, though. Gary Cohn, who is his economics, his senior economics advisor. Former head of Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Remember, that was the whole big discussion. Look, Trump has all of these Goldman Sachs, all of these bankers in, and one by one, they're all leaving. But with Cohn leaving, he, by the way, he's leaving apparently because, resigning because of the trade dispute over tariffs. I read something this morning that there was a conversation between him and the president several months ago where he said he was only using about say like 50% of his capacity. Yeah. He could do a lot more. He really wants to get into something, wrap his mind around it, really work and do some intellectual Make work. Make something and happen. He thought infrastructure was going to be that sort of a concept. And of course, that's kind of dead on arrival at the moment. And so that's not happening. And then this happens. And yeah, so uh, he steps down. But Wall Street, much of President Trump's Wall Street growth was uh, directed to the fact that Cohn was on board and was moving the government in a way that would be better for Wall Street. But now they believe Wall Street may take a hit because uh, Cohn's leaving. The initial hit was a 300-point drop. He Ooh. was announced Wall Street dropped. Now, And didn't Cohn have an issue where he was about to resign a few months ago? During the Charlottesville march oh, where President Trump says there's bad people or good people or whatever both the quote sides. was on both sides – Cohen was like, ah, wait a second. He was rumored yeah. to want to step down at that point, but he didn't. So it appears that, uh, you know, he's he's President Trump's losing a lot of his top people. I don't know. He had a press conference with the, uh, the Swedish prime minister yesterday. He said, believe me, everybody wants to work in the White House. They all want a piece of the Oval Office. There will be people that change. They're always changed. But so many people want to come in. I have a choice of anybody. I can take any position in the White House, and I'll have a choice of the t- of the 10 top people having to do with that position. Everybody wants to be here. Wrong. And then a couple hours later, Gary Cohn announces he's stepping down. Well, um, okay. So then it doesn't seem like they're announcing a lot of new people coming in. No. We've heard – I mean I just haven't heard of a lot of uh, – I haven't heard of any Most of the reports show that they ask and people say no Yeah. because mainly this, the investigations keep going. People keep getting hauled in front of Congress to testify. They have yeah, to lawyer problem, up and yeah. people don't want to be involved no. until this clears up and then maybe we can see if people – Well, do you remember when we hired Jeff and then all those investigations started? Right, right. That was hard. And I was absolved of any of – any wrongdoing – Actually, I don't think they're done. No, it's an ongoing I've situation. been here for a year and a half. Exactly. They, this has gone on forever. Mm. And all now all the produce, we can't, it's hard to get producers. Right. None of the producers want to be on the Their show. Their first question, was there any collusion? Yeah. And will you pay for my legal fees if I get called before the grand jury? Any collusion? <laughs> it's, it's been hard, Jeff, but um, we're still here for you. Okay. I mean, as long as you're not in prison. I cannot tell you how many people have asked about obstruction. Yeah. Interference. Yes. Like, really, this is, he's, you know, he's, come hey, on. Hey, he, he's a co-host that runs a board. Give me a break. How much could he obstruct? But there's so much interest. So it's ongoing. We'll keep you updated. Maybe Scaramucci's coming back. The Mooch? I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, everybody wants to come back. That was one uh, thing I read is that President Trump did sort of say, hey, to Gary Cohen, if if I'd like you to come back at some point, is that possible? He said, yeah, give me a call. So maybe that will be the way wow. that President Trump fills some of these positions as he grabs some of our, our past favorites, you know, past hits, brings them back into the White House. Oh, yeah. They wanted to work there before. Maybe they're open to joining the team again. People love, like, replaying the oldies. Right. The person worked out so well before that they left. Now we're going to bring them back. I, I bet there's some that won't come back. Yeah. I mean, like the one that... Bannon. Bannon. And then the one with the abuse problems. Yeah. Lewandowski has a uh, yeah, his own company yeah. that's profiting off of being able to get people close to the president, essentially. So he's liking that lifestyle. Maybe this is where you'll get people to step up more. Uh, there's there's a bunch that we haven't heard as much from since the ele- since since President Trump's election. Mm. Uh, maybe some will come out. Kel, uh, what's her name? Kellyanne Conway. She she's you know she's yet to I think fully show her shining star. Well, th- isn't th- she kind of in waiting? She's yeah. kind of there's, floating around. There's several uh, things written over the weekend saying that she's very like. Agile in the sense that she knows when to step forward and when to yeah, step back smart. and get out of the way, she's, and that's why she's been able to survive so long. But also, I be bet someone she'll be the next communication director. They've offered it to her before, and she didn't take it. She doesn't seem to want that. No, I think she likes just being able to step in and talk to the president, and then just kind of get out of the way and focus yeah. on key issues that he finds to be important. Just kind of right. do it off, and then the, go run that for a while. Yeah, then, but the attention hasn't been there as of late. So maybe this would be enough to get her back in the spotlight. She'll show up on CNN and throw a wrench into their day for a couple minutes and then kind of run back and continue the work, the, yeah. the important work that she's doing. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Um, let's get to the rest of the headlines. What else, Terry, should we be focused on? Women running for Congress surged to big wins and, uh, and Democrats smashed recent turnout levels in Texas, first in the nation 2018 primary election yesterday, Sweet. giving Republicans a potential glimpse of what's ahead in the first midterms under President Donald Trump, the side of the Associated Press. Energized and angry Democrats came out in force to surpass one million voters Tuesday, the first time the party has eclipsed that benchmark in a midterm primary since 2002. Just months Ooh. after the September 11th attacks. Yeah. Of the nearly 50 women running for Congress in Texas, more than half won their primaries outright or advanced to runoffs. That's both Democrat and Republican. Uh, at uh, the last three of those runoffs in May will feature women going head to head, which is interesting. Really? Just, so, so, yeah, an if all you out brawl. If you didn't get 50% of the vote, they take the top two and they have a runoff and in, a, in May. Uh, Republicans also set a new benchmark for turnout in a midterm election. Land Commissioner George P. Bush, eldest son of Jeb, fended off a stiff challenge to win his Republican primary and events towards an almost certain victory in the November general election. And apparently President Trump uh, threw his support toward Bush Jr. Yes. And uh, Bush Sr. Jeb. As they're saying. Jeb! Exclamation Jeb. point. George P. Bush is running as Trump's wingman is how one person characterized his campaign but this is a big deal because i'm not sure the republicans are going to get as much as high of turnout they're it it's kind of they're kind of tired they're saying for a, a midterm election they set a new benchmark not a record but yeah, a new benchmark the democrats that did. republicans did oh they did. the democrats had record turnout and the republicans also had oh so it's good, good so, turnout. The, so the republicans will match it everyone's so it motivated be, this is great so it's not like texas is turning 
blue or purple. They're going to stay has red. Just a few but, bruises. Yeah. There's some, <laughs> but, but, but as they're saying, 50 women running for Congress, more than half of them won their primaries in advance to runoff. Or advance to runoff. Right. So there's just more diversity of people getting yeah. involved to... Awesome. Uh, they're motivated by the current situation. Earlier today, Vladimir Putin showered praise on Donald Trump, but the Russian president expressed a disappointment with the U.S. political system, saying that it's eating itself up. Speaking on state TV, Putin was asked if he had been disappointed with Trump since he became U.S. president last year. According to the AP, Putin said he actually had a very positive impression of Trump, a man who he thinks is a great communicator and with whom you can search for a compromise. However, the Russian president went on to say that he has been surprised by the U.S. political system, which he says demonstrated its inefficiency and has been eating itself up. Trump and Putin shook hands and had multiple chats on the sideline of international summits over the past year amidst the investigation into the Russian involvement in the Hold election. Hold on. Now, uh, and, now, Putin's, he's with Russia, right? He's with Russia. And, and, and Russians were involved in our elections. That's what Wrong. our intelligence... Apparatus of the country. Like says. All five of our intelligence leaders yeah. say they were involved. And now Putin, who's over Russia that was involved in our political system, is saying that the political world in the United States is in a shambles. Yes. But he has a positive impression of Trump. Mission accomplished. I guess. Okay. Well, the other side of it, Putin's running for re election, right? So he can point at democracies around the globe and say look at the chaos look at the we, chaos we have a better system here yeah i mean his hands in half of them by the way the uk right. said if russia puts their hands in our election Ooh. it's gonna get ugly wow because apparently a, a, a double agent and his daughter yeah. were poisoned that was yesterday Ooh. allegedly alleged well, they're they, not he there's something a, wrong with them they're he, in a the hospital he is a russian spy that worked for MI6, which is the British Secret yeah. Service, basically. James Bond, of course. James Bond, of course. And uh, he was found out, but he lives in, he was arrested and then in Russia, then released, and he lives in Britain, and then now over the weekend was poisoned. Uh. Now, before there was a guy who was, uh, who had uh, left Russia, was not a, not a, Putin was not happy with him, and then he died of, uh, pala- Uranium. was it palladium? Polonium. Yeah, Polonium. It was radiation poisoning. Yeah. Mysteriously, radiation poisoning got into some tea. So that was several years ago. Yeah. So now they're saying, is this the same thing? They don't know yet, but you know, it looks like, like... It's like when you get bad sushi. That's right. <laughs> with, <laughs> with polonium it's in it. It's just like that. Yeah. The Justice Department plans to sue the state of California, alleging that the state violated the Constitution with sanctuary jurisdictions. The suit expected to be filed in federal district court in Sacramento will reportedly claim, according to the Washington Post, that three recent California laws obstruct federal immigration enforcement. Attorney General Jeff Sessions plans to publicly address the lawsuit today and will reportedly say we are fighting to make our jobs safer and to help you reduce crime in America, and I believe we are going to win. The uh, governor of California calls this a stunt. Okay. And I'm like, no, a stunt is when you jump a, like a car over a bus that's stunt on fire. Is evil Knievel. That's a stunt. Yeah, right. I don't know what this is, but yeah, he should know that. He's in California. They make Duh. movies there. That's where they do most of the stunts. Emergency hospital visits for opioid overdoses increased by 30% across the country between July 2016 and September 2017, according to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC found an increase for men and women, all age groups, and all religions, but varied by state. 
with rural-urban differences. The Midwest region was hit, hit hard with a 70% increase in suspected opioid overdoses reported in emergency rooms. State like, states like Wisconsin and Delaware reported over 100% increases. Holy cow. So it's not getting better. It's an epidemic. Maybe we should do something. Yeah, this seems like this seems like something you'd want to wrap your hands around. Maybe that'll get Gary Cohn to go in there and wrap his hands around that. I think I'm not sure, but that la- last thing I remember is that Kellyanne Conway was in charge of the presidential commission looking into this. Well, I think she was until she got caught sitting on the couch without her shoes on That's in right. front of the entire Black Caucus. I forgot that picture. That was that so was long ago. Kind of embarrassing. Finally, uh, curling clubs across the country are struggling to keep up with the demand for ice and learn to play sessions uh, since the U.S. men's team made its run to a gold medal in the Winter Olympics. In a single file line, the all-ages group of 40 shuffled gingerly onto the ice in Omaha, Nebraska, as it says. Oh, neat. A few looked athletic. Others, not so much. All had pulled rubber grippers over the soles of their shoes to reduce slippage. Yeah. And now it was time to learn how to curl. The instructor admonished them not to play catch with the 40-pound stones. Runaway stones trucking down the ice should be stopped with a broom, not a foot. It's a good, as that's you, a great yeah. lesson. As you know people do. They just yeah. stick their foot out to is stop that, it. Hey, is Larry, that why, stop that. Is that why your ankles are so weak? Yeah, that's why I, that's mm. why I don't do curling. The Denver Curling Club held six open houses over 10 days, and more than 1,000 people ages 6 to 80 came out. The Lone Star Curling Club in Austin mm. had sold out 500 spots spread over uh, 10 learn-to-curl opportunities. Yeah. Every four years, coinciding with the Winter Olympics, curiosity of the ancient Scottish sport, Holy, in quotation really? marks, oh, really? sport. Yeah. No, it's a total sport. Uh, it goes up. Of course, because you know you watch it on TV, you yeah. want to give it a try. But this year, clubs across the nation are reporting unprecedented interest because of the U.S. men's gold medal win. Um, that's interesting uh, because you've heard of an ankle breaker, yes, like in basketball, mm-hmm. a crossover where some guy, guy falls down. It. Yeah, but this really, you could break an ankle or just yeah. If you got your ankle leg. wedged between like the wall and and one of those stones. Yeah, so remember, use the broom, not your foot. It's interesting that this is taking off. I once heard of a guy that mm-hmm. talked about how his first date was curling. I thought, oh, well, really? what a loser. And then I thought— <laughs> It was actually the second date, but that's fine. It was the first, it was oh. the first date that was asked in the oh, relationship. Was this you? Yeah. Oh. It was the first date asked, but it, it was for two weeks out. Right, so then I jumped in the week before, and we went to a baseball game. So actually, my date was first. You but predated, she, but she her. asked first. So I don't know which one mm-hmm. is actually the first date. I was trying to keep it kind of anonymous. No, I've, we've talked about it multiple times. So with the uptick in uh, people curling, are we yeah. going to see more juicing too? Oh yeah, yeah. Nothing worse than a juiced curler. Yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Speaking of curling, you know where they're going to need it? <laughs> where? Um, pretty much the entire Northeast. There's a nor'easter hitting again. Well, they'll Number have two. they'll have plenty of playing surfaces. Fifty million people from Philly to Boston are now under winter storm warnings. Ooh. Two thousand flights canceled today. Whoa. This is bad. Mm. So what happened to that storm we were supposed to have here over the weekend? Yeah, just. I heard that out. you guys got some of it up there. We did. We did. I got none of it. 
Well, it's, you know. I got nothing. It's very selective. I shoveled twice. <laughs> I, by the great. time I thought, maybe I should go shovel, it had all melted away. We shovel. I, yeah, we, we always, we're late shovelers because mm. I've learned why shovel early, you know? Because then it's done. Well, no, because then it snows again. It snows again. So you had to shovel twice. I just shoveled once. Well, if and it's ca- really half a shovel. If you catch it towards the tail end, yeah. then what happens is you shovel. And then it melts as it snows. Exactly. That's what I did. So it was great. That's what I did. I don't go out there at the first. I know people that get out there. I don't know what they're doing, but they're getting up at like 6 in the morning on a Sunday. I also wait because my neighbors all have uh, snowblowers yeah. and then they have four-wheelers with the, yeah. with the plow on the front and they like to play with their toys. <laughs> go ahead. Well, yeah. after you pay it for that, I mean, you pay that much money for it, you got to get your money's worth, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah you Whereas I have money. a shovel. I'm like, ah, I'm not going out there yet. So um, have you guys ever been in a nor'easter? Uh, no. No. How about a sore Easter? Mm, no. Mm. Me either. I might be sore this Easter. Why? He doesn't know. It's several weeks away, something could happen. It's he, true. I'll be out of town. He could try to stop a curling stone with his foot, for instance. <laughs> you wouldn't think that that would be such a dangerous thing, but now that you think about it, how much are the eight-pound stones? Forty, 40. pounds. Oh, man. That's and your reaction to something is, I'll just put my foot out there and stop that. You know, if like it's a basketball or something, you put your foot out to kick it, but you can't do that when the thing is, you know, cement and moving at a rapid pace. Um, <laughs> hold on. I got to look it up now. Uh, so when I was an EMT, I learned really some weird stuff. Mm. Okay. And um, what one of the things that I learned is that um, – so when you said it's a 40-pound stone, I'm like, yeah. well, that's I, – I, this is the thought that came to my head. This is kind of how warped I am. That's, that's like four human heads. Yeah. Whoa. True. You know, a human head weighs about 10 to 11 pounds. Sheesh. That's five Oscars. Yeah. Wow. That's another way to look at it. Yeah. So I don't know why I, I brought that up. But um, – that. And part of it too is if you've ever had this, if you've ever been like falling asleep where you shouldn't fall asleep, and then you have to like whip your head back up because it's falling. Yeah, it's it's eleven pounds of head falling. You're talking about church. I wasn't going to say. Yeah, that. but you're talking about church. Yeah, I mean every church is different. So that's what I'm talking about. This is church and this show. Yeah, there's two places. A lot of head whipping. <laughs> church. And this show. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, how to um, how to take care of our kids, how to how to teach them what they need instead of just relying on schools to be the only place where our kids are learning. What if we could actually uh, teach them at home as well? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Most important lessons for our children uh, to learn are best taught in the home from family members who love and care for them. Schools should be a child's second resource for learning. But what if parents are not able to provide their children with the educational, health, physical resources for the schools to supplement? A few months back, I spoke with Professor Lara Bronstein about her book, School Linked Services, and I began the interview by talking about how many kids don't have the support system they need. 
Right, absolutely. And um, and many times it's through no fault of their parents. Right. The parents that are low income and may need to have two jobs or things that don't allow them to have the time and the resources to provide for kids like middle class families might. And you, in in your book, and a lot of your great writings, in fact, one of your articles, A Model for Interdisciplinary Collaboration, has been cited as one of the top 10 most influential articles in social work in the last decade. Talk to us about um, how schools and, and, and having access to a lot of the wonderful services provided by government through the school system is, is proving to be a pretty sound system. Absolutely. And it's it's not just services through government. It's services through government, through nonprofit organizations, and through the private sector. I think it's um it's when um uh we we realize again that middle class families can provide things for their kids that uh children from uh lower class families do not have. And we've now tipped the balance where the majority, where over fifty percent of children in this country are classified as low income. Mm. And so if you have parents, for instance, that are working two jobs, uh that are not available to go to parent teacher conferences or don't have the funds to pay for summer camp for their children or for soccer lessons or for dance classes, some of the things that I was fortunate to be able to provide for my kids, the, the, the data has shown that the difference in academic success for these children from the lower class families that don't have access to these resources is the difference in their academic success from their middle class peers. So you can have, you know, teachers in the classroom that are doing excellent jobs, but if students don't have the resources to support them in the classroom, whether it's because they have summer learning loss, they didn't they didn't do something productive over the summer, they don't have productive activities after school, they don't have access to the health or mental health services they may need, that's the difference in their academic achievement. And then we just chalk it up to, you know, someone will make a comment about the teachers aren't doing a good enough job or the, or the you know, educational leaders. It's, I mean, this is a highly complex issue, right? Multi, multi-variable, multi-input um, issue, and we can't just assign it to laziness or assign it to, you know, lack of spending or money for the teachers. Correct. Although funding has been something that ha- is a strong corollary. I mean, if you look at our standing in the world as the United States, we're sort of in the middle of industrial uh, countries in terms of how well our students do in education. But if you look at districts that are predominantly middle class or or, um, or upper class, then we're at the top of the world. So it, there really is a correlation between um, financial resources and how well our children can achieve. In your in your uh, writings and in your modeling of this, give us an example of what a really healthy integration of services, resources, kind of the community center schools that you talk about. Mm-hmm. What does it look yeah, like? So community schools are really the models of schooling services because they take a comprehensive approach and they take a local approach. So um, the first thing that, that should happen in, in a community school is to get somebody on board who's a community school coordinator. The first thing that person does is a full needs assessment, a needs assessment where they talk to, to students, families, teachers, principals, business owners, 
people who drive the buses, the school buses, cafeteria workers, everybody involved who touches children's lives in those communities. And then they find out where is this community doing right by children, where are we supporting them, and what are the challenges that we need to address. And so in each particular district or each particular school, an individual plan is made up depending on what the needs and the resources are. Hmm. And it's uh, really a 360-degree view. You try to get a look at everybody, all of the stakeholders, find out what's working, what the strengths are, find out where we need help, what we're not doing very well, and then start just connecting the dots? Absolutely. So, for example, we're doing a lot of this work in uh, in Broome County in upstate New York, where Binghamton University is, and in our um, in our inner city core, which is a small city of Binghamton. What we found out was most needed was um, was extra academic support for students in high school that were close to graduating but might not graduate without extra extra help. So we developed an after school program hmm. in Whitney Point, which is one of the rural areas where we are in developing a community school, the highest need there was there's a lot of families out in rural areas that don't have transportation to get to school, that themselves may not have graduated from school. And so what we're starting with there is outreach, actually going out to these families' homes and talking to them about their students and what's needed and how we can best support these families. So within the same county, a very different starting point depending on the particular needs of that community. And and then you just... I mean, it doesn't sound like this takes an enormous amount of resources as much as identifying the problem and then, I mean, then figuring out ways to to bring resources to it. Yeah, and I think, you know, these, the community schools uh, around this country are funded in a whole array of, of ways. So it's usually a composite of funding. So some federal funding, some state funding local funding, um, some uh, foundation funding, uh, um, uh, individuals, local uh, um, business owners. So it's it's usually a composite of funding. And it's interesting, just a little extra academic support for a certain community, a certain group of people can go a long way, could actually and is, it sounds like, increasing their graduation rates and really changing their lives. Absolutely. I mean, I you know, before I got into academia, I worked as a social worker for a number of years, and I really feel like this is the best shot we have at addressing the intergenerational cycle of poverty because we have families where nobody's ever graduated. And if we can put some supports in for kids from those families so that they can graduate, then they can be more successful. You know, they can be more successful in terms of, uh, you know, wage earners. Um, and then there's correlations in terms of things like health disparities. The more educated you are and the more resources you have, the more able you are to take care of those things for yourself and for your family. Hmm. Describe some other problems that that are faced by um, you know lower income families that we may not fully grasp as as being such an impediment to breaking this intergenerational poverty issue. Well, I think a lot of schooling services are um, uh, are, are school-based health clinics, and I think there are many families that, uh, you know, again, depending on their work schedule, depending on if they have transportation available, may not be able to get children to the doctors whenever they need. Again, I was lucky as a middle-class uh, professional that if one of my kids was sick, I could leave my job, take them to the doctor, didn't worry about losing wages. I had a car that was, was usually 
really reliable to be able to do that. But if you don't have your own car and you're dependent on public transportation or you're in an area like a rural area where you don't have public transportation, you have a child that's sick, maybe if they're a little bit sick in the morning, a cold, you're not certain, if you know that you can't get them in the middle of the day if they get sicker, you're going to keep them home. Mm. That child's going to miss school. Whereas if you know there's a school-based health center on site, I can send my child to school if they need an aspirin, they need a nurse practitioner, they need somebody to take care of them, they can do that at school. I can go to work and I can get my wages and my child can, you know, even if they, they are managed to get half a day of school, they get that education that they wouldn't otherwise. Mm. And that's, you mean that's cars, that's transportation, that's uh, health care, just the decision making. It's the ability to know that you your income won't be deeply affected by mm-hmm. a child's cold one one day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Boy, Absolutely. is yeah. talk about and then and then I listen to this as a as a relative. I have relatives that are school teachers, and I think then the school teachers are the ones that end up having to make a lot of these decisions as well because the parents aren't there. Talk about the impact all of this has on the teacher. Yeah, I mean, the goal is for this to be a support for teachers, that increasingly, again, as we get more students in in classrooms that are um, from low-income communities, and, you know, it was maybe in the... uh, uh, you know, last in the in the 1950s, the expectation wasn't that everybody was going to graduate. It was some people will graduate, some won't. Now our goal is for everybody to graduate. Not necessarily everyone go to college, but you know we hope people have the choice to go to college and the resources if they want to. And if that's not the best path for them, they choose a trade or something. Then to be able um, to do that. But the goal is to be able to support teachers in the classroom as their job gets more and more difficult so that they can focus on what's their expertise, which is teaching. Mm -hmm. And if they have a student in the class that can't focus because they're hungry, is there a way we could link that family with a a food bank or help those family members, the parents, to get their GEDs or to get jobs so that they can get the food for their child? Teach us more about your research. So you've now gone into these... um these community, these schools, and you're, you're identifying the fact that, hey, we can actually eradicate uh, poverty. We can either get rid of it or improve um, the conditions by simply creating uh, schools that are more, I guess, responsive to meeting the needs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you know, you look at one of the things that perpetuates intergenerational poverty, it's because generation after generation, there's the same lack of lack of resources, whether those are financial or their um, or their, their health or whatever kinds of resources they are, and and students who have uh, family members that have not graduated college or less or high school, I'm sorry, are less likely themselves. So once we put in supports for these kids to be able to achieve in the same way as their middle class peers, we have more students that are achieving, more that are graduating, and we have more successful uh, people, uh, better quality of life, um, you know, more people engaged as wage earners in the workforce. Is it, is it that the resources are there, um, they just aren't known? They're, you know, they're held in some grant somewhere and the grant needs to be used. Or is it um, because the word that I keep hearing here and reading here is linking. It's it's really about linking the people to the resources. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think the answer is both. Sometimes resources are there, um, but it is a matter of access that people can't get to the resources. So, for example, you know, there may be there, you know, clinics in the community that that will serve children, uh, but people can't get to those clinics. They can't get to them the hours they're open. They don't have the transportation to get to them, or they don't know about them. But sometimes there aren't the resources, and then we have to look at how can we create those resources. And then, uh, and then I guess, and, and diagnose and connect and get the, I mean, because too, it sounds like you're also trying to inform very busy parents a lot of times that, that are just trying to stay afloat um, about resources. Many times do you see that the parents aren't as receptive to it uh, just because they don't understand it? Yeah, I think that's the, you know, often the initial response that, you know, most of us have to something we don't understand or to something that's changed or something that, you know, if parents feel like, well, I'm not adequate because I'm not providing this for my children. Um, and so I think it's helping them see that uh, none of us provide, you know, everything that our our children need. And I'm not talking about monetarily. I'm just talking about in all ways, none of us are perfect parents. Right. And so, um, uh, you know, what, what are ways that, uh, you know, the whole notion of it takes a village. Uh, what are ways that we as community members uh, can help support all the children in our community? Is is there a um, – I, I, I'm not even sure that this costs more. It doesn't seem like as much as it just takes some seriously creative people. Yeah, I think it's both. I think that it, some of it is creativity. And so, for instance, for us in, at Binghamton University, we're following a model that was developed at the University of Pennsylvania called University-Assisted Community Schools, because we believe that universities have resources to bring to bear on community issues like mm. this. And so we have the advantage of a lot of very smart, motivated students that are getting engaged in this work. So that's a resource that we that we have here. But... but it, Often we will uncover resources that need to be developed that we that aren't available, like in rural communities that may not have as n- enough health providers or mental health providers. And so, how can what can we do to actually create? Or you know, oftentimes it is bring funds to bear. Mm. You know, we we believe strongly, those of us that do this work, that that uh, this kind of model of prevention does end up being cost effective in the end. That it prevents. You know, again, it gets more people in the workforce, more people who can make their own living, more people that are healthy, um, uh, but, it, but it does take some time to impact. This is, this is, you keep mentioning urban and rural. I mean, this could yeah. be, this could be middle America rural and it could be big city urban, right? So um, what are the different issues that you see happening in urban versus rural areas? Yeah, I mean, certainly in, you know, in, in urban areas, you may have um, more concentrated things like, uh, like violence, especially in some of the major metropolitan areas, um, but you don't have the issues with transportation or proximity, whereas in rural areas, often there aren't as many professionals there to provide the services. There's the lack of transportation uh, for the services. So there are different issues in different communities, which is why we start out with a, with a broad needs assessment to see what is this community need? What are its strengths? What is its challenges? It's not a one-size-fits-all. Can you – what is going on in your head as you see a transition of leadership in the country? Um, it, it's one thing. It's hard enough for you to just get the point across and to share your research but then to get uh, to get it picked up and get this institutionalized across the country, is that 
realistic? How do how do you go about sharing your research so that more and more people's lives can be impacted? Well, I think um, you go on the Matt Townsend radio show. I think um, to start. You know, I, I, I think academics, um, you know, we do tend to, you know, publish in peer-reviewed journals where other academics and students will read, but I think more and more, certainly our college, which educates students to, to be involved in the public and nonprofit sector, very much encourage faculty and students to get their work out into the mainstream. You know, this is an, an issue, you know, community schools and schools, schooling services, it's a bipartisan issue. I mean, it's an issue, you know, who doesn't want to support children? And it is cost effective. It's not may not be cost effective in the first few years when you're putting money in, but ultimately it's cost effective. So with a long view, it's been something that's been supported by people on both sides of the political aisle. Tell us how it how you've seen it change lives. Well, I, I, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, students that, uh, for example, we have a summer program, and uh, we've seen students come through that that summer program and think that they're going to go to the summer program, and then they're dropping out of school and be like, oh, my gosh, I really can graduate. One of the things we do in the summer program with middle school kids is we take them to Binghamton University, and we take them to SUNY Broome, our local community college. We do overnights there. We have them eat in the cafeteria. We talk to their parents about financial aid opportunities. We make something real for kids that they may have, you know, grown up to think is impossible for them. Um, I mean, how that's powerful. And I, I, I just I feel bad in a way because we it's so complicated and we don't understand that the kid next door, uh, they're they're not just lazy. They're not just the parents aren't aren't inattentive and not caring that there's a lot of right. people underwater trying to just survive. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. And there are even, you know, some parents that, that that we talk to that say, oh, I didn't think I was supposed to talk to the teacher. I thought that was interfering in the mm. school. I thought that would be insulting to the teacher. So there's all sorts of real concrete as well as um, perceptual things that get in the way of, uh, of having everybody be on board and supporting kids the way they need to be supported. Is there something we can do um, just as neighbors, as fellow citizens in the community to push for for a more kind of linked, integrated community school? Well, I certainly think you can talk to your uh, your school districts, your your leaders in the school districts about it. You can talk to uh, uh, your go- local government officials, and you can also talk with your local universities. I mean, uh, you know, social work programs, for example, are ones that have been involved in this work. Some schools of education have been involved in this work, and uh, you know, even if it's if it's a small start with working with uh, you know one particular school and and having uh, uh, maybe some. Uh, masters of social work or masters of education, or we've also had nurse practitioner students going into a school and working with students there and starting to build programs, and then people get to see the benefits of it. Hmm. I, it seems like too you're onto something really powerful when I when you think of the universities connecting to these schools. Absolutely. Oh, there's so many great resources just in, and how many students need internships or need other opportunities to integrate uh, with with um, the community as well. There's just so much there. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And our students love doing this work. They love it. And we have gotten students across all uh, different disciplines in our university. So we had a student who was a uh, computer science major who was helping us to build a website. So it's not Mm. just the social worker, just the uh, education students. It's really anybody. Um, We had students um, who are studying languages here that have gone on and worked with students that have um, English as their second language or who are studying languages in the school and done tutoring with them, providing extra support. I mean, really, there, there's no end to this because the links could go everywhere from healthcare to just transportation. I mean, there's, which is every field at a university. Right, absolutely. And certainly academic support um, for tutoring and things mm. like that. Yeah. So if we gave you a magic wand and you could, mm. you know, magically make it appear what what would you do with it, Lara? What would you? How would you set up this this system? Well, I would certainly make you know every uh, every school in the country a community school, and uh, we do a lot of work with the Children's Aid Society in New York City, and that's been their goal for a number of decades: is every school a community school? And I think again, you know, starting um, with what is that community? All communities have strengths, and all communities have needs. What are the strengths, and how do we maximize those strengths? So we feel that in our community, Binghamton University is a strength, and we want to we want to maximize our contribution. There's also needs, and how do we address the needs that are that are there? And so I would, uh, you know, my magic wand would be to have all communities across the country be engaged in these in these discussions and uh, be able to move forward so that the kids aren't their success is not dependent on their zip code. Their mm. success is dependent upon um, on their motivation, on their skill, on the supports they have to be able to be successful. Well, we appreciate you and your great work. Uh, It's a wonderful book as well, School-Linked Services, Promoting Equity for Children, Families, and Communities. Dr. Lara R. Bronstein and Susan E. Mason, um, they're great work there. I mean, if we could just, you don't, I mean, eradicating poverty, that's huge, right? But just networking and and creating community links between universities and our, our educational system, just that could go such a long way. Also, especially, what if we could just have more compassion for poverty and for those that are suffering and understand the complexity of it so that we don't just assume it's a laziness issue or a, just a, people that don't care. Wow. It's great to have true experts uh, out there studying this. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know, there uh, everybody needs advice on their marriages, and sometimes you wonder who would be the best source of marriage advice. Well, Terry's found a source that you may not think would be a good source, but maybe they've got some pretty good advice. Divorce lawyers. Yeah. Divorce I mean, lawyers. They've seen some of the worst marriages around. Right. Now, they're giving dating advice that leads you to a marriage, and they're, they're okay, at, there's good. your questions you should ask before you get to the point it's of marriage, great. and then yeah. a few years later... To them on, on the divorce side. They'd okay. run, they're trying to head this off. Yeah. Actually, this is working against their business. I know. This right? is going to run them out of business if we, if we uh, Question right. one. When is the last time you talked to your siblings or parents? That's important to know. Do you have a relationship with them? What is Are it like? Those kind of questions. Yeah. Are they going to be around a lot? Two is, do you believe in happily ever after? Ah. 
says all relationships require work and commitment from both parties to make them work. Someone who thinks happily ever after just happens is probably not going to be a great partner because they're not going to work at it because it just should happen. Yeah, it's right? just good marriages are just happy and wonderful, easy. <laughs> this one's funny. You're dating, so you should ask, are you married? Uh, hmm? Great point. Great point. Separated or married means not yet divorced. Your date should be free and clear. Do you know how many times I've had to tell people they shouldn't be dating when they're married? Really? Really? Have you? No, yeah. You had to point that out? Like, Was it a revelation to them? They're like, whoa, really? Well, I mean, but we're almost divorced, they tell me. Well, yeah, so that means you're almost not married anymore. Hmm. So why don't you just wait another month? Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm getting older. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's not like it's going to spoil I don't know. <laughs> you're not you're not cheese. <laughs> Wait, I thought That's cheese funny. got better with age. Yeah, it depends on the cheese. Mm. Yeah, some cheese is just bad all around. Uh let's see. The fourth question here. What do you love most about your job? Hmm. Do mm. they have a sense of pride in what they do? Are they passionate about it? Or do they go from job to job to job? It's a great question. Conversely, what do you love most about your job? conversely, are they married to their job and have little room for anything else in their life you like you yeah it's good see these are great questions from divorce from attorneys for people when you're dating to make sure you choose the right person five is where did you go on your last vacation oh i don't vacation much they say what you really want to know is how did you pay for your last vacation but that's a hard question to ask outright but your date uh if your date went on an extravagant vacation you could innocently probe further with a wow how did you pay for that Finding out if your date made a large purchase by saving over time or putting a trip on a credit card can be useful information. It can lead to information about how much debt your potential mate has that you're walking into. Are you uh, walking yeah. into a pile of debt or is this someone who's fiscally responsible? That's a tricky way to to get to it because you don't want to just come out with someone you're dating and saying, so how much debt do you carry? I did. Yeah, but again – that, it was great. We had a meeting. We sat yeah. there and listed all of our debt to see you if were, we could pay for life. Well, you were already then moving no. toward marriage. Well, I mean, yeah, but This wasn't was, your second date. I even asked her, like, so if someone possibly was going to, I don't know, propose marriage, just for instance, what type of ring would you be interested in? And then she told me. Oh. Yeah. So very, that way that way she didn't even see it coming. Very subtle. <laughs> <laughs> Very subtle. You know, I actually went ring shopping with Rebecca Cressman at FM 100. Did you really? Yeah. We were at an event at uh, one of the malls, and she went upstairs with me and was trying on rings really? that I was then going to give to my wife. Oh, Rebecca's great. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. The sixth question is, do you know who Johnny Carson is? Why, why would that <laughs> really? matter? Because that would be a way of saying, how old are you? Oh. If they know, then you kind of get a ballpark of how old they are why don't you just hold up a videotape yeah you could just say though do you know what this is but like they're trying to be clever but yeah you kind of get you the could idea. just say which kardashian's your favorite many of our <laughs> d- divorce clients swear they had no idea how old or young their spouse was until after they were engaged come mm-hmm. on yeah i know seven do you consider yourself a good communicator um 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 and then maybe talk um, to the person uh, the eighth question, how did your last relationship end? That may not be a, like a first date right. type question, yeah. but you know, when you're in the process. Yeah. What, yeah. How did it end? And look for someone who's willing to take some ownership of the relationship's failure. It shows their That's humility, good. honesty, and ability for personal growth. 
These are great questions. Nine is, if you could go back in time, what is the one thing you would change about your life? Hmm. And then you can just kind of go, hmm, what does that mean? Then you see, you know, are they shallow? I would just change my hair color. If it's like, I should have married my high school sweetheart with whom I stay in touch with, that's a bad sign. Yeah. I would never have received those three or four DUIs. (laughs) (laughs) See, those are great questions. There you go. And by the way, from a divorce attorney. Multiple divorce attorneys. I would never have tried to stop that curling ball with my foot. Stone. That was the Stone. beginning of a very long <laughs> journey. But it me. looks like a ball, and that's why people put their foot in there. Yeah. Ah. See, this is this is why you listen to the Matt Townsend Show, because we want to help you love stronger. Right. Ask them how old they are. Always. Just find out. Always consult your divorce attorney. Are you, sti- are you still married? You start dating again. Great questions. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love longer. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang's all here. And we're talking eight ways to nurture boys today. I don't know why I felt like a need to to remind these boys we'll be talking about them today. We need to be nurtured. Guys need to to be nurtured. There's a lot of stuff where, uh, you know, boys may not feel like they're as valuable as they maybe used to. Maybe creating other problems. We keep hearing of more and more uh, suicide issues and more and more um, aggressive uh, and abusive behavior from from uh, young men. And so we're, we're going to work on ways to nurture boys to create healthier, happier families, healthier, happier lives for all of us. We'll be getting to that. Also today, uh, we've got to be covering um, <laughs> the White House. I was going to say, speaking of boys, but uh, another, um, Gary Cohn is now leaving the White House. He's the senior economic advisor. He has decided he's he's got other stuff to go do. He's out. Out, which is a weird thing uh, that could actually impact the stock market now because Gary Cohn is the head of – He was the head, former head of Goldman Sachs. Yeah. I mean that's huge. So he's uh, that was part of the conversation that came out yesterday was possibly he didn't feel intellectually um, utilized the best. Yeah, stimulated. Maybe uh, he's not. Depending on what the White House was moving towards, he's like, oh, we did the tax package. That's good. Now, what's the next thing? And the next thing was supposed to be infrastructure. So he was going to try to figure out some of those uh, funding sort of yeah. complications with that. But then that went to the Congress and died because they're not going to do it this year. If they do anything with infrastructure, it'll be really next year. Yeah. After everyone's not running for office. And then the, the tariff thing the came tariff up. The tariff came up. And that's that's against, creating problems. He was, he was always saying, we don't need to do this. There's other avenues. Dropping a tariff on the entire globe isn't the best approach. And he did it yeah. anyways. So uh, President Trump needs to, to kind of revamp uh, his, his White House. But he says it's going to be easy to do because there's so many people yeah. that are just chomping at the bit to get in there. So the, there's, uh, people want a piece of the White House. They want it on their resume. I think they want it in their home. You know, maybe take like the Oval Office <laughs> seal and throw that in their living room. Hey, can I have this coaster? 
Sure. <laughs> Take this coaster with the presidential seal on it. So uh, all of that's going on. Um, so, get, you know, just know more news coming out of the White House. Um, we also have a nor'easter about uh, bearing down on uh, apparently everywhere from Boston to Philadelphia, 50 million people without uh, under storm warning. So got to watch out for that. We'll get to all of that fun. But before we do, let's get more to more of the headlines with Terry. Find out what else we should be paying attention to, Terry. Texas came, became one step closer to breaking one of its major glass ceilings Tuesday's two Hispanic women won Democratic nominations for congressional seats. Primary election results indicate that Senator Silver Garcia, now set to secede Democratic U.S. Representative Gene Green and former El Paso County Judge Veronica Escobar, is set to take over for Democratic U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke, who is running for U.S. Senate against Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz went after him for using the name Beto when his name is Robert. Uh, and CNN pointed out yeah. that uh, Ted is not Ted's first name. His first name is, uh, I forget what the name was. It was it's, a, it's a it's Spanish a, name. It's a, his, his father's Cuban. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an ethnic name Here, there. We'll it's his first name. But he goes by his middle name, which is Theodore. And he goes by Ted. And so they, Ted Theodore Logan? No. So Ted oh. Cruz had this, uses his middle name and... Uh, Rafael Ra- Edward Cruz. There you go. So Rafael Edward Cruz is Ted Cruz's name. He His opponent, he made a video kind of making fun of the fact that the guy doesn't use his first name, which is like Robert. He uses an ethnic, like, uh, shortening of it so that he seems more like he's oh, part wow. of the... Cl- and it's like, well, you're doing the same thing. Wow. But opposite. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're yeah. avoiding... Yeah. So... Rafael Edward Cruz. And they kind of moved off that, but it was fun to watch that video. Uh, so two women are, are now going to run for Congress in, uh, or I guess, yeah, run for Congress there in Texas. The uh, wins also make them the first class of Texas freshman women elected to a full term of Congress in 22 years. Timing has to be right for a lot of us, Escobar told the uh, local newspapers there. And I think it's even harder for women of color because fundraising is really such a huge component of running in a congressional race. And many of us may have limited networks to be able to reach out and be able to pull in that kind of money to run. Garcia added, I've never really wanted to be the first. I wanted to be the best. Huh. So interesting things coming out of yesterday's primaries. A lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats, lots of women are involved, lots of different people are, are there's a george p bush jeb's yeah. little jeb's little, son that's running jab, a jeblet so news a jeblet aren't you supposed to take the jeblets out of the turkey before yeah. you eat it okay yeah use them just in gravy i love jeblet gravy. jeblet gravy the chairman of the house oversight and judiciary committees bob goodlatte of virginia and representative trey gowdy of south carolina announced tuesday that they are encouraging Attorney General Jeff Sessions to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate the abuses and the use of the FISA request to target Trump's campaign aide uh, Carter Page. So they're going to investigate the FBI. This is not about either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. This is about how the world's most important law enforcement organization handled one of the most important investigations that it's, in, that it's ever been in charge of, huh. says these two guys. So the FBI will be investigated well, they're encouraging it. Who knows if they're actually yeah. going to do it? But that's what they would like to see happen. Wow. Uh, West Virginia's legislature unanimously voted Tuesday to raise teachers' wages, bringing an end to the walkout that has kept public schools across the state closed for almost two weeks. Uh, there's no question I'm going to sign it, says Governor Jim Justice. That's a, that's kind of a cool name if you're a judge. Judge Jim Justice. Governor, I'm not sure. But yeah. Maybe he should like think about that. 
just change jobs for a better name association right. with your job. He goes, I believe in your purpose. I believe in you. I love our kids. School is expected back in session today. Justice has also promised to assemble a task force to address the state's health insurance system by March 13th. Oh, boy. You so wonder what will shut down then. I don't know, but there are uh, a couple other states, Oklahoma, and I think there's another one that's lower down the payroll scale nationally. Oklahoma, their teachers are looking at them. Hey, they just they oh, just went on strike and got a raise. Work. And they got nine days off. Mm, there's that, too. They always they, have to pay for that. They got T-shirts that had names of their counties on, or school districts. School districts. Interesting. Yeah, so you get a, a souvenir out of the yeah, situation, right. too. And a free T-shirt. <laughs> Target is raising its minimum uh, wage st- minimum starting pay for workers for the second time in less than a year after seeing a bigger and better pool of candidates, the AP reports. The Minneapolis retailer, which hiked starting pay to $11 an hour last fall, said all workers this spring will receive a minimum of $12 per hour. Target said on se- in wow. September that it was planning on raising starting pay hourly pay to $15 an hour by 2020. On Whoa. Tuesday, the CEO said that the number of job applicants rose by 60% in the days after Target increased its minimum wage by $2 to $11 an hour. The pay increase was announced as Target's annual investor conference in Minneapolis was going on. So they're seeing more and better. Do you do? Does Target have full-time employees? So do they give benefits? I'm not sure what the total compensation I mean, package is. But. I mean, that's great to go make twenty dollars. That's or whatever the number is. Fifteen by twenty twenty. Yeah. That's great. And and if you could also get benefits and work full-time, then you're talking. This is like high-end. Hey, this yeah. is a high-end. What do we call them? Big box. Right, so they're you know they're, they're they're getting more applicants showing up, yeah, and beca- and when you get more, then you get more of a selection. You can have higher, yeah. more quality people. I think a lot of them are trying to keep it so you don't make as you can't work full time. All the shifts are, are under thirty no, hours. Yeah, total and they're and, saying you, you know this is uh, starting pay. That's great. So yeah, you're yeah, looking you at entry level jobs there. So, uh, and finally, if you've always wanted to visit Walt Disney World or Disneyland, but don't. Like the idea of long lines, humid weather, and thousands of people, there's uh, good news. you don't news. like Disneyland. Yeah, there's good news. Google is bringing the 11 Disney parks to Google Maps Street View, oh, allowing cool. you to virtually visit the tourist destination from the comfort of your own home. That's great. There are a variety of parks to choose from, including Epcot, Magic Kingdom, Hollywood Studios, and you can cruise around them freely to look at all the attractions and imagine if you'd actually pay the money to get into the park. And maybe use fast passes to get to the front of lines. And, you but know, then, then you could actually create your entire day. We're going to go to this part of the park. Yeah. Then we're going to go get a churro over here. And then, well, you wonder how they, they shot that. They must have done it in off hours. Because you don't want a Google truck driving around Disneyland. No, but you could put a guy. No, they've done it where, like, uh, like the Himalayas, some of parts of the Himalayas are tracked and they have a backpack. Oh, just put so the hmm, guy puts right. a backpack on. You probably have like four or five people keeping people away because yeah. he's just sort of wandering. And you have the big camera. If you've seen the cars that drive around that do this, they have a huge camera on top yeah. that does like a 360 view. You know, and- then there's going to be the one guy in the Disney, yeah, uh, the California Disney whatever park that's going to follow that one cameraman the entire time. <laughs> yeah, just wave at it. Hi, picking his nose, Hello. and yeah, and then he'll be a Google star. There you go, on Google Earth. <laughs> Boy. Or they'll just blur his face out 100,000 times because of all the photos they take. Yeah. Are you okay? You just, you just I smacked my hand on this fake desk we have in so here. So some people were listening because this is radio, and they heard, ow. Yeah. 
I, and I just wanted to make sure that you... I'm good. Okay. If you're I listening, did. Matt abuses us. Please do yeah. something <laughs> quick. Terry hit his uh, hand. hand. Um, hey, uh, here's, here's some really interesting news. Nancy Pelosi's donating her gavel. And Which one, the big comically sized one they have or the normal size? I think one? probably the normal one. Okay. And a pantsuit that she oh, was wearing um, to the American History Museum. Okay. So if you want to see a gavel on Isn't a she pantsuit, the first uh, female Speaker of the House? Yeah. So there you go. There yeah. you go. It's pretty good history right there. Um, uh, interesting news. Uh, and you guys, I'm, I know you'll pass this test, but I've got a, a mm. test ready for you. And now I need to find it. Where did it go? Okay. Um, does anybody know? Um, can anyone define for me dumpster fire? Dumpster fire? Yeah. Yeah, when you set the contents in a dumpster on fire. No. A mm. dumpster fire is a term that's used when something has gone, some event has gone just complete chaos. Yes. Because. The thing that gets – the idea is there's a riot, you light the dumpster, and you push it into the street. It's an ongoing, seemingly chronic calamity like a sports team's awful season, a tech firm's catastrophic product launch, or a presidential candidate's chaotic campaign. So my answer could be a true answer. Yours was a very literal answer. Yeah. yeah. Um, like a few months back, Uber was having a lot of problems with their – um, CEO making comments yeah, with like some harassment fire. issues. And then there was – every time they had a meeting, somebody on the board of directors made some sexist comment at a meeting talking about sexism in the company. It could have been a, a, a dumpster fire. It was a dumpster yes. fire. Yes. And we bring this up because um, these words are in now in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So you need to know the phrase dumpster fire. Here's some other ones that I'd love you to be able to define for me. Wordy. Wordy. Yeah. What's a wordy? Hmm. So a lot of our company emails. Yeah. <laughs> good, good point. Yes. A, a wordy is a lover of words. Okay. So like a yeah. foodie. A, yeah. Um, this seems like a Donald Trump word to embiggen yourself. Yeah. Apparently it's something that was on The Simpsons at one point. To stoke your own ego. Yeah. To make bigger or more expansive something that yeah. you have. Uh, blockchain. Mm-hmm. Blockchain. That's to do with uh, Bitcoin. It's how they keep track of Bitcoin. Ah. It's the ledger. It's the ledger. It's the digital d- database containing information. Which it's really the only part of Bitcoin that people think is very interesting is that you can track money from its origin to where it currently yeah. sits. You have this long list of this uh, blockchain transactions. of yeah that validates the existence of the non-existent currency. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is one. Somebody actually handed me a bottle of kombucha. Uh-huh. Hmm. Have you heard of kombucha? I have. Yeah, isn't that that cinnamon milky drink? It depends that they on how they drink how in Mexico. I think it. that's um that's uh horchata? Horchata. Yeah, horchata. Uh the uh, kombucha is um it's a gelatinous mass of symbiotic bacteria and yeast. I think I saw that movie. Grown to <laughs> produce a fermented beverage held to confer health benefits. So it's hmm. it's, it's bio allegedly. It's bio. It's to it's, care bi- for your, it, it's your gutty biome friendly drink of choice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fatberg. It could be. It could be a fatberg. <laughs> uh, mansplain to explain something to a woman in a condescending way that assumes she has no knowledge about the topic. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's hmm is also a word they added to H M M. Hmm. That's what it says here. Really? H M M. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Subtweet. Welp. Mansplain. Yeah. 
Glamping. Uh, glamping. glamping. Now let's let's ask Jeff if he knows what glamping is. Yeah, it's a it's a mixture of uh, getting uh, primping yourself and making yourself more glamorous. Glamping, Close. or is it getting uh, getting glammed up as a vampire? It's glamorous camping. Yeah. With oh. Plumbing. There's a place nearby. We looked at it. They have yurts that you can go hang out in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're in a really high end tent. Yeah. And you go inside. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're on this elevated platform, but you have a TV. Yeah. You have plumbing. So you that's have... not camping. No, it's, it's camping because you're sleeping outside. It's a very glamorous way of in almost t- dying. You're in a tent-like structure. Yeah. By that logic, though, we're all sleeping outside, but yeah. just with walls around us. Exactly. Yeah. We're all glamping. You also have five-star meals and a chef. and Yeah. Oh, we which don't is, have the five-star meals. Which, so. by the way, is different than glomping. <laughs> totally different. And then unicorn. Mm-hmm. You're, Jeff, for example, you are a unicorn. Well, thank you. You're like a one in a million. Oh, you're the you're a you're a, a business like a startup that is valued at a one in a billion one in a billion one billion dollars or hmm. more. You're that you're that unicorn. By the way, glomping I think is what I do Friday night after we put the kids down. It's the end of the week, crash on the couch and I glomp. Yeah, after a bowl of nachos. Yeah, hmm. and we smothered in muddy buddies. Ooh, now that sounds like a winning combination. No, 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 no. That's called glomping. <laughs> Did you mention self-care? No. Did you? Apparently they had to put that in as a word. Self, oh, really? self hyphen care. Yeah, because we didn't know. Okay. Oh, that's um, because nobody can afford health care anymore, so they have to work on themselves. Life hack. They to do their own kidney transplant and all that. Life hack is a word now? Is it? Yeah. It's two words, really. It's funny. But they're words, these are all words we've been using for a long time, but now it apparently, apparently Merriam-Webster is like onto it. Dark chocolate? Really? Like together. That, those two together as a yeah. word. Hmm. I mean, there's a space, but... And I think it's kind of self-explanatory, dark chocolate. People get that, but they had to put that in the dictionary. I mean, dictionary. I think in some languages, like in German, that's a word. That's been a word for hundreds of years. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So As has glomping. The, I think it's the, on their food pyramid, actually. When yeah. I, I remember when I was in elementary school and they added the word ain't to the dictionary. Oh, really? Because, you know, ain't ain't, ain't a, a word. word. And um, you ain't supposed to say it. Because it ain't in the Bible. Yeah, and so the teachers are always like, it's not in the dictionary, you can't sit, don't use it. And then all of a sudden it's in the dictionary, and they're like, still don't use it. Yeah, it's still not in the Bible. It's still not a word. I'm not allowed to say dough, which is also in the dictionary. Uh, My wife's not a fan of The Simpsons, which is interesting because she married one. No, totally. Homer. She She married Homer. She didn't marry just a Simpson. She married... Homer incarnate. I told you my grandma's name is Marge, right? Marjorie Simpson. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. And the neighbor, Ned? (laughs) It's all there, folks. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about eight ways to nurture boys. If you got a son, if uh, you got a grandson, listen up. We'll give you the tools.
Did you know that according to the National Center for Education Statistics, boys are 30% more likely to flunk out or drop out of school than girls are. They're less likely to attend graduate or attend uh, college. They're far more likely than girls to um, die by suicide. The suicide rate for boys ages 15 to 24 is about 18 suicides per 100,000 boys, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. That compares with about five per 100,000 for girls. So um, something's going on. And these boys, we I have five boys, one girl and five boys, and we want to give you some tools today about how to uh, help uh, nurture boys, some things you can do as a parent or just as an adult in their lives to, to help make a, an influence. Joining us to talk about it is Jennifer Fink. She's a nurse, a writer, and an educator, and she stresses the importance of how we nurture our boys now and how that influences the kind of adult they become in the future. She also has a, a, is the creator of buildingboys.net which is a resource for parents, educators, and others who uh, who really want to help to build healthy boys. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So, again, I have five boys. I have one you daughter. You beat by one. Are you serious? Uh, do, yeah. Do you, have, do you have a daughter? I don't. I specialize in boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's better to specialize. It once then you become the master of something. But there they again, it's you don't want to like generalize, but something's going on out there. Um and we hear all the news and um the me too movement and and all of these things. We know that if we're not careful, men can become dangerous in some ways. They can become afflicted in others. Um what what drove you to want to nurture boys as much as you do? It, it is as simple as the fact that I ended up having boys. Um, because I grew up as a girl, I didn't fully understand or appreciate what the world is like for boys and for boys growing up into men. I didn't understand, you know, the biology. I didn't understand the social pressures. And so when I started having all of these little boys in my house, there were things that happened that didn't make sense to me, but their dad was like, yep, that's normal. (laughs) For instance, uh, I have this distinct memory. My oldest two boys were about four and two, and they were quietly sitting on the floor watching TV, and these are my first two kids, so it was a PBS show, and it was educational. And then, uh, randomly, with no apparent signal between either one of them or on the TV, they just got up and started running and jumping up on the couch and leaping over to the other couch and and running loops like that. (laughs) That didn't make sense to me as a girl, but that's normal for boys. Sure. Couch jumping. Yeah. I didn't know. Nobody gave me that memo when these children were born. That's true. And then, then all of a sudden, we, we might over-discipline it. We might under-discipline mm-hmm. it. We, we, because we don't know, we just we either react to it or we ignore it. And Exactly. And that's what I found as we got further into this and as the boys hit school age. I started seeing that there are a lot of places in the world that really aren't particularly boy-friendly right now, that don't really have a good understanding of the challenges boys face and the things they're grappling with and what they need to thrive. Hmm. No, it's I agree. I totally agree. We even had one of our our boys jumped off the couch, broke his foot, and we didn't know it. We just we didn't oh, know no. and um we didn't know how he did it. Nobody knew. 
because but he was watching Hercules, of course, and the, he must have had his own Herculean moment. But oh my gosh. broke his foot and then just kind of walked with a limp for a few hours, but with you know wincing. And then right. we realized, okay, something's not right here. And but he was tough. And How we didn't. Old was he at he the was time? probably three. Yep. And so it's like, okay, I mean, something's wrong, but he doesn't seem to be really worried about it. Right. <laughs> so so we waited a day, and then we took him in after a day, and they said, oh yeah, he broke his foot. Now, how old is he now? He is uh, 23 years old and still so walks he... with a limp and walks crooked. We don't know why. <laughs> so weird. So, the so weird. The reason why I'm asking is because one of my sons was uh, about that same age, and we had taken the boys bowling because, you know, something to do, right? Yeah. And um, he tripped, and the ball fell, and, Ooh. you know, he cried. And kids cry, right? So yeah. So he did what all good parents do. We bought him a candy bar and some soda, and we finished our game. <laughs> well, it turns out it fell on his thumb and broke his thumb, which we realized when yeah. we were putting him in the car seat oh, sure. to leave. But now that he's 17, he's like, you finished your game of bowling. Oh, yeah. I mean, bowling's expensive. <laughs> yes, it is. It's not like you can just drop and get right to the hospital. Exactly. That's why boys are so great. They're exactly. so they're so resilient. So you are. you put together a list of eight uh, different ways that we can nurture our boys. Let's go through the list and um, and help us understand because they need they need a lot of stuff. They need and some of these are things we are not doing as parents. So we actually would set up our kids, I guess, to have to to be weaker than they need to be. Sure. And it, you know, and I want to say straight off, it's difficult to do everything all the time, right? right? You know, so we're not going to, all of us do all of these things all the time. I can't be great in all areas at once, but these are good principles to keep in mind as you're raising your boys. And I'd also like to say, because people have asked me, you know, does this apply to girls? Well, yes, to a certain extent. These are principles of good parenting, but I think they're crucially important for our boys right I now. I totally agree. First one is to say no. Do we not yeah. say no enough? <laughs> it's interesting. We say no often, but sometimes I think we're using the no when we don't need to, yeah. and we're not saying it when we really should. I, I do that all the time. I'm like an automatic no but right. but I I shouldn't be. I mean, there's a time to say no, and but eventually, I mean, boys need to hear no too. They they, they can't just they always do hear need yes. To hear no, and as this conversation, you mentioned the Me Too movement before, and yeah. as these conversations have you know um, been percolating, and we're talking about them amongst ourselves as adults, it's become really apparent to me that this whole ability to hear and cope with no is crucially important for our boys. Mm. We don't want to raise boys that grow up to be men that think whatever they want is what should happen. Exactly. And, and we, we even see that with, like, when we're, when we're you know, we, you have a really great athletic child. A lot of the great athletes aren't told no enough either. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is through all different parts of life. They need to hear a no, and, and it also would then develop, as you teach, resiliency, but also, you know, let's find a different way to do this, a more creative way to do it. Exactly. Sometimes you have to say no to the specific request, but maybe there's something underlying it. So maybe, you know, if your kid is asking if he can 
bike to the store on the other end of town on a busy highway all by himself. Um, and you might need to say no. For safety reasons, maybe you know something about his ability to judge and handle what's coming at him, and you don't think he's ready. But if the goal that you, can, you see is that he wants some more independence, perhaps you and he can work together to find another way to give him some more independence. Yeah, that's great. And uh, how many no's are we going to get in our life? time we're yeah. we need Eight to million? yeah and 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 just re- help them recognize that no isn't permanent but it's well it's negotiated you also say well, along with the no's we need to say yes more yes uh one of the things that frustrates my boys tremendously and i'm gonna guess yours too is that there are so many things they are said no to that really just let them try it please yeah. and i mentioned in the article Boys are hardwired, hardwired to take risks, and that's a good thing. That's how we grow as humans, and yet we live in a very safety-conscious and liability-concerned society. So we end up with rules like, um, you know, no swinging on the playground or no playing off of the concrete or no this, that, or the other thing. It's okay to say yes to some of those things. You might not be able to change the rules at school, and I understand that. But at least within your, your own home and your own environment, try to say yes as often as you can, especially to you know, little things like that. If they want to build a bike ramp and try taking their bike off it, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, the stuff we used to do 40 years ago. <laughs> yes. That, I mean, honestly, we would have looked like terrorists, but we yep. were just in the backyard <laughs> Seeing how lighter fuel works. And so there's a phrase that I use sometimes called benign neglect, and that's kind of my summary of my parenting style. <laughs> and it, it's uh, partly necessity. I have a lot of kids, and I can't be everywhere at once. But I think it serves them well when you give them some time to just do their own thing. And really, sometimes it's better if I don't look too closely. I'll be honest, I have had boys out in the backyard building bike ramps yeah. that I'm not sure look too entirely sturdy. And when they decide to test it, I do not watch at first. It's yeah. easier for me to handle it, and then they can do what they need to do without me going, oh. What's the, what's the downside to this? So if we don't let them risk, what do we create? We create people who are not only afraid to take chances, I think we create people who don't know themselves and their own capability. Hmm. And I hear so many parents of boys particularly complain about boys' apathy and lack of motivation. And I see a direct link between the fact that so often we are telling them, no, you can't do that. No, don't do that. Don't do this unless I tell you to, that they just sort of shut off the connection between their inner urges and doing things, and they just don't do something. Yeah. No, I see it. I, I agree. And I and then I, I actually think it's one of the reasons we have so much more anxiety going up because these are kids yes. that have never had to know their limits and don't know how to figure stuff out. And that's such an important point. You know, boys especially figure out where the limits are by testing them. Yeah. And the only way they know their capabilities or what their friends will tolerate is by trying to push up against those limits and often, you know, bouncing across them and seeing the consequences of what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember my mom, she had to go to work when because I was uh, my parents divorced. And so she had to go make money. And 
I remember finding the coins and the money I needed to get on my bike. This I must have been eight. Mm-hmm. Drove, rode my bike up to a, a like a a dollar store basically, and bought a Matchbox car. Completed a transaction. I actually had to go twice because I didn't know what tax was, and oh, I didn't sure. have you enough didn't money. Have enough money. So I had, but I figured it out. I had to go steal a quarter from my sister, and <laughs> then I went and. Uh, but I cr- created a transaction at the yep. age of eight. Got the car I wanted, took it home, and played with it all when my mom was at work. And I'm thinking, and my kids now are like, my car window doesn't go up, and I'm like, well, take it in and get fixed. And like, yeah, I don't know where, I don't know how, I don't know who. And you're like, come on. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you even remember that story all these years later tells me that 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 was a significant moment in your life. Yeah, like, totally. You felt really grown up, proud, and confident, and capable. And that kind of confidence builds confidence, and it builds competence. Absolutely. Uh, we're speaking with Jennifer Fink uh, from BuildingBoys.net. She's a writer that has uh, appeared in pretty much every magazine that includes children, babies, and parenting. Um, she's uh, also uh, written a wonderful article on eight ways to nurture boys and the mother of four boys herself. Um, uh, talk to me, Jennifer. Uh, another thing that I thought you brought up that I haven't ever thought of it this way. Um, you, you talk about modeling responsible use of technology and you really suggest we make our bedrooms tech-free zones. You know, and I will tell you that that is still a goal in my house. No, I love I'm that going idea. To be yeah, straight up honest about that. Uh, like so many people, you know, I've become reliant on my phone as my alarm, and then it's right there. You know, we all know the problems with it, but I really think that that is an ideal to strive for. I mean, we have we can be connected at every minute of every day. And I think we all know intuitively that that's not necessarily good for us. Yeah, totally. And and, yeah. and and the idea, too, though, if all of a sudden we just said the bedrooms are for reading, they're for relaxing, they're for sleeping, bring tech out into the – not just the public areas, but, but keep tech – keep a space in your home where you can actually uh, be healthy and, and mm-hmm. not have to be influenced by tech. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love it. And that's something that every family is going to have to figure out on their own. You know, the different families have different tolerances, different guidelines. It may be easy for you to say we're going to do this and start cold turkey. Other families may find that they want to kind of work their way towards that goal. Yeah, that's good. You also suggest we talk about healthy relationships. How do we do that? <sighs> that's a matter of seizing opportunities that are all around us. You know, so often... Our kids, when they get messages about relationships or about sex, it's all in very scary terms. Don't do this because this might happen. And I understand that we're trying to keep kids safe, but the flip side of that is I don't want my kids or yours or anybody else's to think that relationships are bad or scary. Mm. And... For instance, um, a lot of schools, including my son, still do this thing where they send home the the mechanical baby yeah. in health class to, you know, the point is to teach them that, hey, a baby is a lot of work and maybe you're not ready for that. The only message they're getting from that is that, hey, a baby is a lot of work. They don't get any of the positives hmm. of parenting or relationships. So I think we have to talk about that and be deliberate about that. And I think we also should call out 
when we see examples of unhealthy relationships. And, you know, TV and movies give us all kinds of examples. And it can be as simple as just making a comment or asking what they think about an interaction. We can't take for granted that our children know what a healthy relationship looks like. Especially, let's face it, a lot of us adults are still working on what is a healthy relationship. Yeah. No, that's great. And so make that, in fact, some of the next ones you bring up in your eight ways to nurture boys are, they're really conversations. And one of them could be just about healthy relationships, even healthier, um, you know, ways to broach the subject on sex as well. That's a great article you've done. Also, you also say use that same time to uh, teach your kids what's right, what's wrong. Teach them your value system. Right, right. And every family's may be a little bit different, but yeah. there's so much that happens in parenting by modeling, right? So if you want your kids to have healthy relationships, the best thing that you can do is work to build healthy relationships with the with um your spouse, if you're married, with your friends, with your coworkers, with people in your church. But we also have to talk about some of these things because our kids don't always understand what they're seeing. So having those conversations helps them process. Yeah, absolutely. Another great one is to indulge their interests. And really, you talk about encouraging, finding out what they're into, and then do what you can to encourage the interest, to build on the interest, to invest in the interest. Right. So on my way down to my office to do this interview today, I stepped over um, the parts of a lawnmower that are all spread apart in my basement right now. (laughs) That's my 12-year-old's project. He is fascinated with machines. He's really gotten interested in engines. He has a much more complex understanding of engines than I do, driven because he wants to know it. I just really don't care. Like, I want things to work. He wants to know how. So I give him the space to do that. I facilitate him doing that. Um, what was the tool that he needed? A gear, a gear something. I don't even know the name don't of the ask tool, me. right? Yeah. He needed some specialized tool he didn't have, and um, he goes all the time to the store and buys tools for himself. <laughs> the eight-year-old you would love this kid. That's well, awesome. anyway, this was a more expensive tool, so I said, Sam, I got this for you. That's because cool. to me it's an investment in his learning and in his passion. Absolutely. And, and but you can see some parents saying, oh, okay, oh, you like engines. Excellent. Let's, let's go to med school. Right. Exactly. Let, because doctors, I mean, it's the same thing. It's a body and an engine, and doctors make more money. But right. You can, Although I'm not entirely sure of that anymore. I know. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Right. But, but there's something valuable when a child sees that their parents really care what they care about. Mm-hmm. And I really think that all of us come into the world with some natural gifts or talents that we're supposed to be sharing with the world. And, you know, our kids, they bring these out in little, in little ways, and then they look to us for a response. They look to us, they look to their friends, they look to their teachers and society, and if they start getting the message that what they're interested in is not cool or not okay or not manly, they may shut that down. And what a loss for all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, think about what we would lose. Another point you make is to just let your boys be. What do you mean by that? This is where I'm talking about letting that inner light shine. Boys particularly face so much pressure to be and act in certain ways. And I think at this point in time, boys face that pressure far more than girls. The message that girls can wear what they want and do what they want and be what they want 
pretty solid right now. But a boy who dares to take a dance class, for instance, still faces a lot of pressure mm. and ridicule. And so what I'm talking about is creating you know, safe spaces for boys to be who they are innately, um, facilitating that, and helping them kind of look at some of these beliefs about what a real man or boy should do. I was um, reading an article yesterday that suggested talking about it, particularly with older boys, in this way. Ask them what they think a good man is, hmm. and then encourage them to think about what a real man is. And often they get all these messages about what a real man does. And it's the, you know, be tough, be strong. And the good man is what we, you know, honor and integrity and all those things that we want people to say about us after we pass. And there's not always a lot of lining up and congruence between the two. So having those conversations and and helping them dismantle that. That's great. That's great stuff. Uh, finally, um, your eighth point is to encourage activity. I guess encourage your your boys to keep moving and get moving. And probably the biggest thing that I really mean is don't stifle their activity. Mm. Boys, you know, as soon as they get to school, so many boys struggle because school is still very much a sit-down-and-shut-up kind of place, which Absolutely. is not how yeah. most boys learn. And it can be very difficult for them to deal with that in the classroom. And then to come home and have more like sit down and be quiet expectations. <laughs> just, so I have found that if you can make your house, your backyard, your immediate area a haven for movement and learn to tolerate some of that chaos, it's better for your boys. And ultimately, your family will run smoother, too. Drives me crazy sometimes hearing the constant bang of a ball going through a Nerf hoop on the back of the kitchen door while I'm trying to make supper. But they're getting out that energy, and that makes for a better evening for all of us. Oh, that's so true, and that is my life. We have a basketball hoop in our front room, um, and you know, five. We 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 play three on three basketball. But uh, good stuff. Wow, really great learning, Jennifer. I appreciate your time. Thank you for your. Your insights. Again, uh, the website is buildingboys.net. It's just filled with awesome articles uh, to try to raise your boys, to inform you, to educate you as a parent, and to take your kids to the next level um, of life and, and actually just have them feel acceptable and okay with where they are as a, as a boy or a young man. Great resource. We'll continue the journey. Little Coach's Corner up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. remember one of the best ways to influence somebody is to first be influenced by them so if we want to truly help our children become the best they can be we we are at some point we need to listen and allow them to influence us. And uh, as Jennifer was talking about, if your child loves um, engines and you don't, and you don't understand the fixation, then it's probably time to to try to understand what they love about it. Go watch them in their element. She talked in her article about the fact that she would sometimes just take 
her kids that love uh, snowmobiling and um, and engines, she would just take them places where they would go look at snowmobiles or where you could go look at lawn equipment and yard equipment and just let their imaginations go wild. It doesn't mean you have to walk out you know, and buy a sit-down lawnmower, but you could go when they're young and let them play. I've seen it with my own son. Um, uh, one of my kids just loves videography, loves uh, making music. And at the age of 12, I found out, uh, he just told me, um, he went and bought at the age of 12 a $250 piano. Um, I don't know what you even call it. It's a it's a program you put on your computer that you run through a keyboard and it makes a keyboard sound like a $250,000 Fazioli piano. Is and he's at you know at twelve he's doing this, and at thirteen he was buying a video camera, and at fourteen he was buying um, the equipment to do the recordings, and then over time he found this passion, and he just got home from a mission, an LDS mission with the LDS Church, and he's now making a living doing this, and he's already at his music again. And so there's something that we always want to try to do by motivating our kids. And and what we do as parents is we keep trying to think that we need to push the motivation down onto them because we don't see them being motivated. But it may simply be that we haven't paid enough attention to them to find out what lights their fire, what makes them excited. And I know what it's like. I have other kids that you're like, you wonder if they'll ever be motivated in like the way this other son is. But they are. They just probably haven't had enough experience or opportunities or some of the things that, you know, they like aren't things that we want to promote. They might love video gaming and we as parents are like, we really need to cut back on that. But instead, we might want to dig a little deeper and find out what it is about the gaming that they love. We've had experts on the show that are fascinating about games theory and elevation of skill set theories that they use in the middle of these video games and how to how to create, um, you know, tension between somebody's ability of knowing something and their desire to want more and how not to overwhelm. I mean, there's amazing theory in there that you could start to connect to your child if you're willing to be influenced. So one of your homework assignments, I think, for all of us as parents is ask yourself, are you really open to what they want and what they bring to the equation? Or do you keep trying to fit them into some mold, some chip off the old block? Are you still trying to vicariously live your life through them? Because if that's the case, you're going to create problems and you're probably going to run into some motivation issues. Nobody wants to be what someone else is forcing them to be. We need to find our own path. We are agents. We are here to act and not be acted upon. And so that's that's the goal, I think, of all of us. And that's just, just you know, just my take. It's not – it's just one parent's view. But uh, it also, I think, uh, it works when when we are willing to get into their heads and their minds. We will continue the journey, folks, more straight ahead. A little empty news for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Yes, folks, it's time for empty news from Jeffrey Liam Simpson. What's up, Jeff? You ever been much of a sleepwalker? No. Or have you heavens. known anybody yeah, that oh, sleepwalks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I'm a sleep talker. 
<laughs> actually. Um, I bet your wife loves that. I wake up not realizing the things that I said in the middle of the night. Or I'll go to my wife, you know, later that day and I'll be like, did I say something like, did I like swear at you? Yeah. Yeah, you totally did. <laughs> And I don't swear when uh, I'm fully conscious, but uh, just when you're asleep, listen you can to totally this. Relax. In fact, she actually had a. She started recording all the funny things that I said in my sleep that I had no recollection of. And every once in a while at a party, she'll just get it out and read it for everybody, and it's it's good for laughs. <laughs> so there's a Pennsylvania middle school that was that canceled classes after a student who said he was sleepwalking was found inside the building. What? So listen to this. State police say the seventh grade student called 911 around 2.30 a.m. Wednesday to report he was inside Wendover Middle School in Hempfield Township. Uh-huh. <coughs> Excuse me. The student told authorities he had been sleepwalking and woke up inside the school. Police say the student entered the school through a window and wandered around for about 15 minutes. Police say the student lives about four miles from the school. (laughs) The school district canceled classes Wednesday due to security concerns. Classes were scheduled to resume Thursday. So not only did he live four miles away from the school, but he got into the school through a window. How do you not wake up? Well, or or was he really just, you know... Sneaking into the school. Did he actually? Did he sneak in and then accidentally get locked in somehow yeah. and needed help getting out? And then did the old "Hey, I was just sleepwalking" trick. Yeah, because I would use that as a. I mean, I've done that when they caught me speeding. I'm like, I wasn't speeding. I was sleep speeding. I always question these types of stories, but uh, I mean, there are really severe cases of sleepwalking. Oh yeah. There's comedian uh, Mike Birbiglia suffered, or he might still suffer from sleepwalking. He was on like the second floor of a La Quinta Inn, and he was having this very vivid dream where he was running away from something, and he jumped out the window, like through the glass, jumped out the window. Wow. And in his routine, he'll show pictures of all the cuts and all the stitches that he got because of it. That's It's a real thing. Yeah, you got to be careful. But I I don't know if this story is real. No. Yeah, we'll have our investigators look into it. Man, be careful, folks. Uh, sleepwalking. It could uh, it could walk you four miles away to school, and you'd be early. That wouldn't be so bad. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered as we watch the Dow fall 300 points today. Um, And many attribute it simply to Gary Kahn, who... Goldman Sachs past uh, leader that was with President Trump. He was his senior economic advisor. He had an abrupt exit from the White House, and uh, apparently it impacted the Dow, as was expected. But uh, another one of President Trump's senior leaders leaving. Uh, but President Trump has, says, have no worries. Fear not, because there's a huge line of people that would love everybody would love to be in the White House so he's he's not worried. Now, he said this before Gary Cohen actually announced he was stepping down. So the president had to know this was happening. Yeah. 
He talked about how there's no chaos. There's not chaos. It was confusing in the conversation when he said that because are we talking about North Korea? Or are we talking about the White House? It's kind of weird. It's kind of odd that there's a confusion between those two subjects when yeah. you're talking about no chaos, but whatever. And so it's like, is it true that there is a line of people waiting to get into the White House when they haven't really replaced people that have left? Yeah, because you don't hear a lot of replacements. And so, and if they do, they always hire from within. But maybe that just means President Trump's going to kind of have a a smaller team, you know, nimble, quick response mm. team. Right. Nimble and quick. Which would be great, really. Um, except the problem with this is this: the governments are huge and there's a lot of stuff. The exact opposite of nimble and quick. That, that has to be done. Sounds Ni- like it needs Jack. Jack. Be nimble. Yeah. Be Jack. quick. Yeah. I don't know. I've never heard of this Jack guy, <laughs> but he does sound like somebody the president needs. So, Jack, if you're out there, wasn't he – isn't Jack the name of the guy that uh, he was pretending to be? The, Do you remember that? The PR person? Yes. No, Which he, he says he, the, he never pretended to be anybody. It's Jack or John. It's one of those Except J names. when you listen to the recording and it's totally Donald Trump yeah. talking about <laughs> Donald Trump. Oh, I forgot That's all sad. about that. That's funny. While you're looking it up, um, New York City is still under storm alerts. Um, it's just getting started, really. The nor'easter is hitting uh, about 50 million people right now are under a storm warning. And uh, I think over 2,000 flights have been canceled. If you're Sheesh. anywhere near Boston or Philadelphia, there's going to be delays. There's going to be a lot of uh, travel problems. So be you careful. Know, the the, the uh Spokesperson who people feel was actually Donald Trump was a John Miller. Was yeah, John. I knew it was a John. John Miller. John Jack Miller, <laughs> aka Donald Trump. Uh, Amtrak trains in in uh, the Northeast region have uh, are running on modified schedules, so don't think you can just grab a train. Mm. Pretty much from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to New York. So the the run of Amtrak basically. Yeah, maybe mm. Queen Elsa has something to do with it. You do know that they're in previews right now, the oh, Frozen Broadway musical maybe. in New York. That's probably it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's yeah, she's probably touched. She's ticked the Northeast. <laughs> Did you know that, Matt? Did you know there was a Broadway play happening? No. At any moment in your life, no. I looked okay, up the tickets. Hundred bucks a pop for like the cheapest seats. Hmm. So, but are you planning a trip to New no, York? No, 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 not for that. For what then? No, not not at all. Cronuts. You're going for cronuts. Ooh, we have a place here in downtown Provo that sells them there. It's so good. Yeah. I'm going to go get one. I thought you were on a diet. Hmm? Huh? <laughs> Come again. What? Come again. Diet? Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? The Federal Communications Commission wants to redirect efforts to help the hurricane-damaged U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, proposing that $954 million go towards restoring the expanding and expanding the broadband networks on the island ahead of the 2018 hurricane season. The plan, published Tuesday by the FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, uh, proposes spending $64 million on short-term restoration projects like repairing power lines and building temporary cell sites, as well as $890 million more to repair and expand the broadband connectivity and to bolster data technology. Wow. That's a lot of money. So, technology and infrastructure was damaged. Let's fix it by making it better. Yeah, and not a bad idea. Right. Especially remember, when Puerto Rico went down, our ability to fight the flu went down. Problematic. 
It's a they big have the, problem. They, they have the saline production, right. Right. Other news, a Russia legislative committee accused the United States of meddling in 60 countries uh, at least 120 times between 1946 and 2017 in a report released Monday, according to uh, their news media. Uh, meanwhile, the State Department has yet to spend any of the $120 million budgeted to do something about Russia meddling into our elections. So they, they're saying historically the United States has meddled in the business or in elections of other countries, uh, 60 countries, at least 120 times between 1946 and 2017. Wow. So they're getting really good at it. They're saying that's how we did it. Russia's accusing <laughs> yeah. us of doing this. And that's mm. funny because our, our spy leaders were saying we aren't doing to Russia what Russia's done to us recently. To- to the extent that Russia did it to us, yeah. yes. Yeah. But we do things like we'll back a candidate. Sure. We'll, we'll pick a guy and say, you're our guy, and then we give him some help and funding, maybe a little PR help and help him in the election. And and that's seen as meddling, right? We're an outside, sort, right. outside entity involving ourselves in that government, but we're doing it for our what we think is the greater good. Yeah. Or is it? Yeah, it is. Because you can see the country not happy with us meddling. But when you ask, they're like, uh, everyone kind of looks around the room uncomfortably because they can't talk about it because it's secret. Well, and many think that the chaos that they see in the United States is something they don't want. Right. But we just call it democracy. This is just yeah. how it works. It's messy, but it's supposed to be. That's right. It's a good mess. All right. President Trump took credit for the very successful Olympic Games on Tuesday, despite the fact that they took place in South Korea. We've been given tremendous credit because the Olympics uh, was not going well, Trump told reporters of the White House. Trump also took credit for the North Korean delegation's appearance at the Games, although his administration had heavily criticized South Korea for the decision to reach out to North Korea. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence notably refused to stand for the unified Korean team when they entered the stadium during the opening ceremony. When North Korea came out in out of the blue and said, we'd love to participate in the Olympics, it made the Olympics very successful, Trump said. President Moon of South Korea was very generous in his statement as to the fact that we had a lot to do with that, if not everything. Okay. Good. Even though we really didn't. Yeah. <laughs> we know nothing. That was him and I meeting with the uh, Swiss Prime Minister. Okay. Uh, a 20-year-old in Oregon uh, has filed a man has filed suit Monday claiming Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart discriminated against him when they refused to sell him a rifle. The move comes after Dick's and Walmart restricted gun sales to adults 21 and older in the wake of the Parkland, Florida high school massacre. The lawsuit, believed to be the first filed over the new gun policies, claims that the store owner owned by Dick's Sporting Goods in Medford, Oregon, refused to sell Tyler Watson a 22 caliber Ruger rifle on February 24th, a, uh, and a Walmart in Grants Pass, Oregon, refused to sell him a gun on March 3rd. Hmm. Oregon law allows residents to buy shotguns or rifles starting at age 18. It's not clear if Watson knew at that point of the restrictions. He was really just trying to buy a rifle, his attorney says. Watson is asking the judge to force uh, Dicks and Walmarts to stop unlawfully discriminate, discriminating against 18, 19, and 20-year-old customers at all Oregon locations. And he wants some money. Hmm. Well, don't they have the right to have any policy they want for how they sell the guns? I don't know. He's I mean, going to sue and find out. I guess we'll find out in court. You'll see my – I bet his attorney's his father. I mean, Could be. What, 
What 21-year-old or 18-year-old has enough money to go hire an attorney <laughs> mm-hmm. to then file, file against Dix? I'm, I'm going to bet there's someone else behind that. Are you thinking this might be an agenda? Mm-hmm. I'm going to no. bet there might be an agenda behind this with a payroll maybe yeah. from some gun. It was interesting. All that information, the last line was, and eh, he's seeking some compensation. So you're saying he uh, shrugged it off, went home, and like, oh, yeah, they didn't let me get it. And there's some adult there behind the scenes going, what? Or what? there was an email put out, hey, yep. if any of you are thinking of buying a gun at 19 in these states, go try to do it at Walmart and and then call us and tell us how it goes. And then yeah. we'll take care of your costs. Any money we win, you'll get. Conspiracy theories. <laughs> it's how agendas are set. Yes. Uh, today's National Serial Day. Breakfast <gasps> cereal day. Yeah, I'm not okay. I'm um, not big into cereal, but the inv- it says strange that the invention of breakfast cereal was founded on the fact that the American diet in the mid 1800s was poor, one packed with protein, booze, and caffeine. Or maybe <laughs> it's not so strange after all. The cereal was considered a remedy of sort in the 19th century uh, for health foods, that kind of thing. It was, it was ailing the masses. So if you're raising and then it goes on to this. But it says reformers in the 1860s viewed too much meat consumption as both unwholesome physically and spiritually. Really? So they went to a more they, – they started uh, experimenting with grains. It said but before cereal took on loads of sugar and cartoon characters, it was quite literally hard to swallow, made of dense brand nuggets. The cereal was so hard it had to be soaked overnight to make digestion not so taxing. Yeah. They're just eating like eating like bricks of wood. It seems like <laughs> to get their fiber, right? So they're like woodchucks, basically. Back in the day, but you had to soak it in milk to really get it to the point where you could try to consume this brick of it bran or something. So tempting. Uh, Doctor James Caleb Jackson operated a uh, a sanitarium. He created Brand Nuggets. It was a health resort of sorts. And he, uh, one of the patrons would uh, at that there would go on to form. Uh, the Seventh Day Adventist religion came oh, okay. out of this. Yeah, um, one of the members of that, of her that new church was John Kellogg, who was a skilled surgeon who dedicated his uh, dedication to health food for his patients. Led to the creation of granola, which later turned into those products. Charles William Post, uh, recuperating from a second nervous breakdown in 1893, was at the same <laughs> sanitarium as the Kellogg brothers. Ah, recuperating. Yes. He kind of got kind of onto this sort of health food kick, oh, and he cow. created uh, grape nuts, which you know destroy your teeth. And, I yeah. love grape grape nuts; yeah. they're good. And he created his own brand of uh, of cornflakes, known as Post Toasties. Hmm. Holy had those. cow! Yeah, nineteen thirty nine is really when the sugar and marketing kicked in. The sugar marketing savvy kicked in, and so the health food concept kind of changed to yeah. We're just going to sugar these people up as they try to get a, get their day started. And then so. some general pulled in in a tank, General Mills, if yeah. you remember, and at gunpoint took Mr. Kellogg and Mr. Post. He is aggressive. That is one aggressive general. It was a corporate takeover, an aggressive one. <laughs> uh, Captain Crunch. Apparently yeah. his full name is Horatio Magellan Crunch. He was born on Crunch Island in the Sea of Milk. In 2013, a food blogger noticed that Captain's uniform only sported three stripes instead of four. This would have made him a Navy commander, a step yeah. down from a true captain. When word got out, Captain Crunch declared on Twitter, of course I'm a Captain. It's the crunch, not the clothes that make the man. Come on. Ooh. That's a great point. Take that. It says 314 million people in the United States 
49% uh, of the country start their day with a bowl of cereal. Wow. Didn't, didn't Cap'n Crunch say one if by land, two if by sea? No, it's different. That so was more General the Mills came in on the land. He was the one. Cap'n Crunch came in on the sea and was used to be Admiral Crunch, uh, now Cap'n, without a wow. team. Wow. And then it says there's 207 <laughs> billion boxes of cereal sold every year. Oh, boy. That would wrap around the earth 13 times. Where did Count Dracula come from? Chocula. Oh, sorry, Count Chocula. Dracula is like the actual thing. Count Chocula. Let me, I want to share my, the results for my cereal date. We took a poll on Facebook. We don't eat a whole lot of sugared cereals in my house. Yeah. So I went out and I bought four boxes of sugared cereal, four different kinds. And I put them in a lineup, took a picture, went to Facebook, had people vote. And more than half of the people that chimed in yeah. voted for this one cereal that I'm going to tell you about. Well, you guess. I think I already told you. There was Cookie Crisp in yeah. the lineup. Cookie Styrofoam. Honey O's from oh, Post. Yeah. yeah. Cinnamon Toast Crunch from General Mills. And Captain Crunch Crunch Berries. Hmm. So more than half of the people that chimed in voted for this cereal. Out of those four, yes, uh, yeah, I would, I would personally think it would be um, the what you call it one, cinnamon toast crunch. But I'm wrong. That came in second. Yeah, but more than half of the people that chimed in voted for Honey O's from Post. Mm, and they're good. good. They're really good. They're good. I think you said your wife just My snacks wife, on them. She just, yeah, you could hear. It. I, I thought she was eating wood chips, but <laughs> she wasn't. She was eating O's. So if you're listening, of those four cereals, tell us which one you prefer. Cookie Crisp, Honey O's, mm. Cinnamon Toast Tweetus. Crunch, or Cap'n Crunch Berry Crunch. Those are great. By the way, uh, certain states have um, the most <gasps> Googled cereal for every state. What's Utah? Utah is Special K. Really? I know. Horrible. California? Uh, California is Special K. What? Uh, it's probably Lame. maybe because it's used in recipes. See, if I'm going to go for a healthier cereal, I'm doing like grape nuts or I'm doing wheat checks. Uh, actually, I can't find a state that's doing grape nuts. What? No. What about wheat checks? Wheat checks are fantastic. Uh, wheat checks are fantastic, but no. What? No okay. one's using them. What about the faux healthy cereals like uh, Honey Bunches of Oats? Honey Bunches of Oats. Which is a faux one, which is my favorite. Faux. Yes, yeah. Uh, no one has that one either. What? It's what's wrong with Cheerios? These Honey Nut Cheerios is Oregon, also a faux healthy. Yeah, uh, Rice Krispies is Arizona. Hmm. One that I didn't know much about was Ancient Grains. What? That's Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, wow. Now, um, now wait a minute. Didn't we decide, or didn't Terry once say that Honey Nut Cheerios? Of all the sugared cereals was like one of the highest yeah. sugary cereals. Yeah. But, you know, that's Oregon. Um, Oreos. I'm surprised Oregon and Washington are not some granola cereal. Yeah, no. There's more than one meaning to that sentence, by that's the way. very funny. Oreos is what? Uh, Oreos is Maine. Maine, they have Ore- Oreo-O's. 
which is their breakfast cereal. I don't trust this list. Apparently, the people in Maine have just given up the ghost, and they just they're willing to die. I thought for in their Maine cereal. I thought in Maine their all of their cereal was like seafood based. No, no, like crabos. Like Sea Biscuits, I think, is one of them. <laughs> no, that's not it. By the way, you I worry about you with your kids. Um, do, do your kids watch Peppa Pig? They sure do. They have Peppa Pig toys. Okay, listen, you have got to hear this. Um, a woman in Shanghai has learned the hard way that toddlers and smartphones are not a good mix. <laughs> she went to work, had forgotten her phone, and left it with her her parents, I guess, who were watching her two-year-old son. But the son kept taking the phone to watch Peppa Pig. Okay. But uh, then the son got locked out of the phone but kept attempting to get into the phone. Oh, no. And ended up disabling the mother's iPhone for guess how many minutes? Um, uh, a thousand minutes. 25 million. <laughs> One hundred and fourteen nine hundred and eighty minutes. Oh, which, man. if you do the math, uh, is a whopping forty seven point seven eight years. <laughs> the little boy blocked his mom wow. out of her iPhone for about forty eight years. Can't you just turn it? Can't you just turn the power off and then turn it back on? Won't that work? I don't know if it works like that. You'd have to Ooh. wipe it, apparently. So, okay. And now, reload. All Ooh. because of Peppa Pig. There has to be some overwrite for that, you there, would think. Well, yeah. There, you just have to wipe your phone. No, I mean, like, clean. if you were to call them and explain the situation. No. Wow. No. Sorry. You know, 48 years. You know what else I blame on Peppa Pig? What? Teaching my daughter to speak incorrectly. Really? What? Is, like, she'll... Because she watches it, there was a time when she would say, Daddy... Like all the words with like a DD in it, Fata. she would say, yeah, daddy. Yeah. See? She was saying with, with an accent. Peppa Pig, uh, I guess ruining your daughter's vocabulary. They can, and another thing, like now, would you pass me the Peppa? There's no D- R on the Pepper anymore. Do be a kind soul and pass me the Peppa. You're like, what? Did you want Cap'n Crunch or not? <laughs> yeah. We're slowly ruining everything. Hey, straight ahead, folks. We're going to be talking about positive energy for a better workday. Some interesting research on positive energy. Straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Every day we interact with many different people. Some lift you up and make you smile. Others seem to drain you of energy and are real downers. In fact, think about it in your own life. Do you have certain people that just drain you of energy? Well, it turns out that the interactions you have with others can either lead to increased positivity or a lack of motivation and job, even job retention. Here to talk with us about relational energy is Kim Cameron, who's a professor of management and organizations at the University of Michigan. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Matt. Delightful to be here. This is, this is fun for you. Uh, you received a bachelor's degree at BYU, didn't you? 
I did a bachelor's and a master's degree at BYU. I'm a I'm a loyal alum. There you go, and then on to Yale, and then now to Michigan. So I I was so taken aback. I, I I'm somebody that has studied relationships for about 25 years even in uh, getting degrees in it. And I sit there and I think I had never heard about relational energy until today. Well, it's uh, it's a field of research, Matt, that's probably only 10 years old at the most. Hmm. And the reason is there are lots of kinds of energy. One, uh, uh, The typical kinds of energy we know about are physical energy, which when I use it, it diminishes. That is, if I run a marathon, I can't do it again. i got to have recovery time. Yeah. Mental energy is the same. If I take an exam, I write a dissertation or something, I've got to have a break. It diminishes. Emotional energy is the same. I go root for the Cougars or watch them play St. Mary's. That was a lot better than watching them play. (laughs) That's right. Sure was. Uh, I'm tired. Holy cow. Relational energy is the only kind of energy that, when used, elevates. That is, you never get exhausted by being around people with whom you have a loving, supportive relationship. You go home after work and you think, I need to be renewed by having this uh, loving, supportive relationship with my spouse, with my children. So we study relational energy, which is the kind of energy that is a product of a relationship between two people, hmm. and it elevates when it's especially positive. Now, and and how do you measure it? Good question. Not very sophisticated. There are three ways to measure it, uh, at least that w- three ways that we measure it in organizations when we try to help them foster or facilitate or enhance it. One is to simply... Um, ask each person, for example, I'll do this in a company with a senior management team. Not long ago, there was an international company headquartered in New York, new CEO, and he said, okay, I've got 40 senior executives. I want to find out the energy connections or the energy relationships among these people. So we simply had every single member of that 40-member team rate every other member of that 40-member team on a Likert scale, mm. one to seven scale. One is, when I interact with this person, when I interact with Matt, one, I'm very de-energized, sucks the life right out of me. Two, three, four, neither, positive or negative, five, six, seven. Seven is, I'm very uplifted, very energized. He's life-giving to me. Hmm. So now I have a data matrix. I have a whole bunch of numbers next to everybody's name. I can put that in a statistical program, and it simply creates a positive energy map. I can determine, it's like in the back of an airline magazine, some cities at the hub, some on the periphery. Well, I can do that in an organization. I can see who the positive energizers are in an organization and who are the peripheral ones. And I can also, on the flip side, find out who the de-energizers are, who are they sucking the life right out of the organization. Interesting. And um, so that's one way to measure it. What are the other ways? So another way is uh, I do this sometimes in classes or when I don't have preparation time before I sit with some group of executives. And that is I simply say to them, on a piece of paper, anonymously, write down the names of two or three of the most positively energizing people in this organization or in this group or in this team. Okay. And then I simply, if Matt gets five votes, I, I draw a, a bubble for him. If somebody else gets ten votes, it's a bigger bubble. So I got a bubble chart, essentially, and I often share that anonymously because people get their feelings hurt pretty easily, but I can determine very quickly. I mean, in, in 30 seconds, I can determine who the positive energizers are in my organization. That's great. And nobody has to, uh, nobody has to get hurt. Yeah. A third way is 
um, the CEO of the Gallup organization learned about this kind of stuff, and so he started a practice on a weekly basis. He simply sends an email out to his employees worldwide asking them the question, on a 1 to 10 scale, what's your energy right now? And if Tokyo used to be 9.3 and it's now 7.8, he shows up and he finds out. That is, he's trying to, it's got pulse survey, essentially. He's trying to capture over time what's happening to the energy in his employee locations, you know. So those are easy ways to do it because we're not very sophisticated in measuring positive energy because almost everybody knows what it is. If you want to start getting scientific, it has to do with glucose levels and heart rates and all that stuff, but that's not very practical. And so we all know, am I being energized by you or am I being diminished by Interesting. you? Interesting. I love this. I really do because you, everyone can feel it. You can feel sure. the leaders that have it and, and, uh, and actually transfer it to you. Um, talk about the benefits. What do you see the people that have high relational energy? What do they bring to the relationship and the team and the company? Yeah, that's a really good question, Matt. What we've discovered in research is that um, well, I'm, 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 let me give a, a very quick preface. Yeah. One of the things that f- is a frequent finding in research among relationships is that people in a central or high-powered information position, that is, all the information flows through them. They can decide what to share. They know the organization's secrets and so on. If you're at the hub or center of an information network, for example, or at the top of a pyramid, so you're, you're the recipient of the information, you have an advantage. So your performance will be higher than the norm, as will the unit you manage. Another option is influence. That is, who influences whom, who is influenced by whom. Now, I don't know for sure, but 90% of the leadership literature equates influence and leadership. If you're influential, that means you're a leader. Almost everybody says that, which is okay with me. Yeah. However, when we do these measurements of positive energy, as it turns out, your position in the positive energy network map is four times more important in predicting performance than your position in the information network or the influence network. That is, energy trumps, in terms of a predictor performance, energy trumps information and influence by a factor of four. So positive leaders more often are positive energizers as opposed to simply being influential. That's one. A second finding is if you're a positive energizer, more than likely, no no surprise, your performance will be higher than the norm, uh, as will the unit manage. Still another, if you are a positive energizer for me, and I can just get around you, my performance goes up. That is, positive energizers affect the performance, significantly affect the performance of those around them. And again, not surprising. We sort of know about that, that positive energizers are attractive. And in fact, there's, a, there's an attraction to positive. Uh, it's a sort of inherent in the human condition. We are all attracted to positive energy, and we avoid or are languishing in the presence of negative energy. So I'm attracted to a positive energizer, and that's good because I can do better. And Mm. then finally, I'll stop here. The best organizations, the highest performing organizations, have at least three times more positive energizers than normal uh, organizations. Now, the implications is important because positive energy is not just personality. It's not just charisma. It's not just attractiveness. 
anybody can learn to be a positive energizer because it's a set of behaviors. It's not just charisma. That's okay. That's fascinating. So it's not personality necessarily. It's not charisma. It's it's learnable. It's teachable. Is it a form of emotional intelligence? Uh, can be. Emotional intelligence has in some ways kind of become a garbage can. Yeah, Everything everything's in, in there. It. You know, uh, everything that's not IQ becomes EQ. But things like, I mean, these attributes are not rocket science at all, but positive energizers tend to be those who help other people flourish, especially help other people flourish without expecting a return, as opposed to being selfish and self-aggrandizing. They're people, as you'd expect, who are trusting and trustworthy. That is, uh, somebody who trusts me tends to be more energizing than somebody who I think, gee, they don't, I, they don't think much of me. It's a person who's a problem solver as opposed to a problem creator. You know, you have, I have an assistant who constantly solves problems for me before I even know their problems. I mean, she's way ahead of me. It just yeah. makes life wonderful. You know, there are people who um, are genuine. They're authentic. They help, under, they help people um, capture uh, purpose, meaning, meaningfulness, and uh, inspiration when they're around them, and so on. I got, there are about a dozen of those, but not rocket science. We all kind of know that. In fact, one little exercise I do frequently in a class is or even with executives, I simply say, take 60 seconds, approach somebody, especially somebody you may not know, and in 60 seconds, create a positive, energizing relationship. Nobody fails at that. I mean, there's eye contact, there's questions, there's laughter, there's sometimes physical touch. There's We all kind of know how to be energizing to other people. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's just that we often get in the pressure of in a competitive world and the stress we face, we just forget it. Is that what is that what's like talk about the number one things that sap our positive energy or our ability to do this? Is it stress? What what else is it? Yeah, well stress certainly is one of those, but in terms of relational energy, it's being around somebody who may be superficial or insincere or selfish or self aggrandizing or they're not creating opportunities for anybody else to be valued. In my academic department, for example, uh, we have three criteria we use to hire people. Number one, you have to be a world-class scholar. That's no surprise. Everybody wants one of those. Number two is you have to be a good teacher. That's no surprise. Everybody wants those. Number three is a differentiator. You have to be a net positive energizer. You have to add more positive energy to the system than you extract. Huh. Well, what does that mean? That means people tend to contribute. They're not just uh, worried about their own popularity, their own status, or their own uh, you know, recognition. They help other people flourish as well. They tend to in- engage and support. I have, see, I have 15 colleagues helping me get better every day, and I've made the same commitment to them. So in that sense, that kind of energy uh, is uplifting. The opposite is people who are self-aggrandizing, people who are... Um, you know, only concerned about themselves, not trustworthy, folks who just get in the way of progress, and so on. You know, curmudgeons, folks yeah. who are always looking at the at the negative. So, listen, this I wish I wish it was really extraordinary and spectacular and something you never heard of before. But when I start talking about it, people tend to say, "Oh, yeah, I get that. I get that." Well, it's <laughs> so powerful. I mean, 
But it, it, I mean, I, I have always sensed this energy and I didn't realize, um, A, that we're studying it now, that we can find some, some you know, some form of, of measuring it. Is it, but it seems like sometimes too, we, we are willing to, we're willing to hire an energy suck because their contribution is seemingly so valuable. But I, I guess what you're saying is, I guess you can do that, but uh, it, it, it does have a cost. Boy, a big cost, a big cost. In fact, you know, again, that research, there are several things we've discovered. I'll, let me highlight two or three more studies. The one study is positive energy trumps influence and information by a factor of four. So hire some prestigious person, somebody who's, uh, you know, highly influ- uh, influential. Fine. But if you manage energy, that's four times more powerful in, in getting performance than just having you know, somebody who's really talented, for example, or yeah. has uh, capabilities. So that's one study. Another study, we, we took 90 organizations, and we simply measured the positive energy of the leader of those business units. And then we simply studied, well, what happens with a positive energizer versus a de-energizer? And very strong relationship between positive energy of the leader and things like job satisfaction and well-being and engagement of employees and performance. One of the surprising findings is family well-being was significantly affected. That is, how well families are doing is significantly affected by the positive energy of the boss. Now, we kind of know that, but this was a very strong relationship in this research. And it's not only the employees but it's the business units themselves. Not only did performance goes up, go up, but things like uh, uh, innovation and experimentation and ter- team learning orientation and uh, cohesion and teamwork and so on. All of those kinds of things went up as well. So managing energy has big impact on the people, and it has a big impact on the organization performance. So for my money... Energy ought to be one of those factors that's managed, and hardly it hardly ever is. No, I mean, ever. we manage information. I just get the memo. Did you come to the meeting? Do you understand where we're going? We manage influence. I mean, here's the incentive system. Here's the goals. Here's the targets. Push, push, push. Hardly anybody manages energy. I mean, does anybody get rewarded or recognized or hired or promoted? Because it's it's much more important than what we normally look for. Do Do you sense then? And because I think you alluded to it that. Um, in the, over time, it seems like the company can take on the energy of its leader, and it's Correct. and and it almost flows down. So you could actually create an entire Fortune 500 company uh, with really bad energy that actually still produces results, but it, right. it it's it's slowly eating itself. Exactly. I, I have a good friend who is a senior executive in the world's largest wheel manufacturer. And he likes to talk about positive energy in the following way. He said, uh, and he's, a, he's a Japanese, but he says, look, the, the fundamental primary principle behind Japanese manufacturing is to eliminate waste or, um, you know, cost and inefficiency. And he said, what I've discovered in our organization is that negatively energizing leaders are creating significant waste. He said, for example, you walk down the street and there's a cold wind and it's snowing and it's blowing. People wear more clothes on. They protect themselves. And uh, so negative energizers can, in fact, get some, he says, get some short-term results. I mean, they, you, you can crack the whip and you can get results. But over time, it's both sporadic 
and a tendency toward negativity. It'll go downhill. Hmm. I have a good friend who's one of the Olympic coaches in swimming and diving. Happens to be the the head coach of the University of Michigan men's and women's swimming team. The women just won the Big Ten Conference for the second year in a row. Wow. He said, give me any athlete. I'll, I'll destroy their ability to compete in a week if I don't exude in them and increase in them positive energy. Because I'm always picking at them. I have to, they have to correct behavior. I mean, I have to, get, have to do the pushing and the motivating, and I have to correct mistakes. But if I don't couch that in uh, an abundance of positive energy, and that has to do with positive feedback, and there's a ratio that we've, there's research that, and there's some research studies that have identified at least a three to five positive injections for every negative. Yeah. Um, will, is is uh, fundamental to human relationships. So he says, if I don't do that, if I, if it's negative energy constantly, I, they get slower. They do. They perform worse. Um, I have a son who played soccer at Michigan for four years, and uh, his. I think he got worse over time because mm. of a coach who is mostly negative, mostly sucking the life out of these players, and so on. And they don't. Even, and, and what's funny is they can again. They can still win titles or whatever because <laughs> that's right. Because the, you just keep rotating your people through. You, you know, that's you right. don't have them for ten years. Exactly. It's exactly right. Wow, this is fascinating, Kim. We've got to have you back. This is, and maybe you need. Maybe it's time to retire, Kim, and come back to BYU. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have you. Close. I think that I think they've got lots more, like a smarter, smarter, and more capable people than I do on that faculty. Oh right now. man, you're a good man, Dr. Kim Cameron. Thank you so much for your great insight. Again, Kim is a professor of management and organizations at the University of Michigan. He's also recognized as among the top ten organizational scholars in the world whose work has been most frequently downloaded on Google. That's a big, that's a big number. A lot of, uh, a lot of people um, are trying to learn about this relationship energy, relational energy, powerful insight. We'll continue studying it. We'll have him back on the show as well. And up next, we're going to be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show, see where their energy levels are, uh, you know, after that big game with Gonzaga last night. folks keep your hands in the right at all times it's time to shoot it down to our good brethren at uh, BYU Sports Nation Jason Shepard and Brian Logan today hello gentlemen good morning hello. how you guys morning. you can't see me right now but my hands are they're are, out are they out yeah. they're out there. keep your hands in Brian they, you're gonna lose a hand they are out it's hey. okay God bless me with another one that's right. You've got. One. Hey, by the way, have you seen that awesome uh, uh, football player, uh, the linebacker in the, um, what do they call him? Combine. Oh, the, co- the combine. Yeah. He's killing it. He has. He's missing a hand, but he's he's fast as ever. Runs a four three five forty. That's amazing. Yeah. What, what's his name? J- Josh. I can't. I can't yeah. remember what his I name is. Go look but it up. I know. I know who you're talking about. Griffin. Shaquille and, and now, yeah. Griffin? Yeah. Okay. Shaquille? 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 Yeah. Shaquille? Shaquille Griffin. That's all, no, all the same. It's yeah. okay. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. It's all good. But boy, what, what, a, what a stud he is. Um, anyway, we got to talk BYU basketball. Gentlemen, what, what, what's your take from last night's game? 
Oh, man. That's really what our show's all about today is kind of dissecting last night's game. And, you know, you may think I'm crazy, and I understand that the BYU lost the game and, and they struggled to shoot the basketball, but when you take what BYU did as a whole in Vegas – I'm actually feeling really good about BYU's chances in the postseason. Really? I know last night didn't go the way that they wanted it to go, that fans wanted it to go. Yeah. But and and but what happened in the in the game two nights ago against St. Mary's, that's going to be the lasting memory for me yeah. from Vegas, not what happened last night. I, I actually am feeling really good. And in all likelihood, BYU's going to the NIT. Sure. But I'm feeling really good about BYU's chances in the NIT because of what I saw from them in that St. Mary's game. That's cool. Yeah, I. you know what? Everybody's going to make fun of me, and they've been doing it for the last couple <laughs> years. I, I would rather BYU go to the NIT in Why? order, in order to, to have more of a run. And I, I know everybody's, team, you know everybody's goal and every team in the nation is to, is to get invited to the uh, NCAA tournament. But if you only go and, – and, and BYU was consistent, I guess, when I was playing, right, uh, of going – except for Jimmer, uh, going and then, you know, leaving the first the first match. That, that's, right. that's boring. It's like I don't have nothing else to look forward to. You want now. more games. But, yeah, but if they can go, you know, make a run, uh, I'm excited because it's more – because at the end of the day, it's more – Basketball that's played. So yeah. if, if if both are options, like if, if they could go to the NCAA, you would still choose the NIT over the NCAA tournament? As a fan, yes. As Interesting. A, as a alumni slash I want the best for the university, no, NCAA. But again, to go lose and you're still the 64th team and, or whatever. See, well, see, that's the thing. It's like, well, I, I say that as an analyst because the perception of kids, when you go and sit down with them, uh, in their living room, talk to their parents, and you say, "We've been to the you know NCAA champion, uh, or tournament, um, you know, ten years in a row." It doesn't matter if you lost, you know, that you came yeah. out of the first round, right? So it's more of a uh, of, uh, of a strategic, uh, I guess, direction there. But as a fan, though, I mean, I want to pl- I want to see them play. Yeah, it's yeah. that's fun to see them play, and, and and to go into every single game more hopeful than the first round. It, I don't you think too? It just looks. I mean, BYU finally they got the St. Mary's thing off their back this year. They they got second place, and but there's something about Gonzaga just seems like they're in a different league. Well, Levels, and yes. that's the Levels. that's really too the other thing that stands out about that game last night is it's so much about just how good Gonzaga is. They're amazing. It's the number six team in the country. Yeah. This is a team that was in the national championship game last year. They could very easily be another Final Four team this year. So, you know, yes, BYU lost the game, but let's look who they were playing. Right. St. Mary's wasn't beating Gonzaga last night either, by yeah, the way. Nobody was. Negative. No, right. No, not at all. And, you know, as a player, I remember playing against, you know, lesser opponents and not doing a good job. And really, is just eating away at me, you know, all yeah. week until I until I get another opportunity. I remember playing teams like TCU and Florida State, and I would get beat for a touchdown or whatever. Had a bad game, I would I would be out that the same day, the same night. Like, hey, let's, what party are we going to? I feel good about myself because <laughs> I could look myself in the mirror as That's a man cool. and say, you know what, I did everything possible. Yeah, you know, it's just a, something called nature where he ended up getting the better genes. Did you guys, because you were um, kind of banished to have to stay home? Um, you weren't allowed to go on the Vegas trip. Did you oh, yeah. guys get to go watch football? And how's BYU football shaping up? 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, they are practicing day number two of spring football right now. It's yeah. like happening as we speak. Uh, I was there on Monday and got to see the last 30 minutes of practice and then talk with everybody. Um, enthusiasm was very high. I mean, everybody – and the interesting thing, we were talking with Butch Pau, and, and he was asking – I asked him about the fact, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm. How much of that is just because it's day one, and how much is it that people are just genuinely excited? He's like, hey, it, it's genuine, and we're coming off a 4-9 season. That should be enough motivation to have, make sure everybody's oh, enthusiastic. Absolutely. Like, they're using that as, as big-time motivation, even in spring, that, hey, we went 4-9 last year. It's got to change. Yeah. yeah, it's embarrassing. It is. It is. And it'll with these new coaches and the new coaching staff, anything else coming up on your show uh, that we need to know about? Well, certainly, like I mentioned, I mean, it's going to be the majority of it's going to be uh, BYU basketball and looking back on last night and looking forward for BYU and all likelihood going to the NIT. So we'll kind of go over that. Uh, Spencer and Jerem are going to uh, join the program uh, from Vegas. We will also have Steve Cleveland joining us, and it's a big deal, no deal. So it is a jam-packed Wednesday edition. Oh, you did it again, boys. We'll knock them dead. You are the best. And uh, by the way, pound for pound, more muscle on those two. That we just talked to. Those guys are ripped. No, oh, they remind me of, of you and I. Um, Jason and Brian ripped. They have between them, they have a 24 pack. They're Spencer and Jerem if they were to Hulk out. Yeah. Exactly. But you know, they're nice. They're not mean. Not to say that Spencer and Jerem are mean. I'm yeah, just saying, no. unlike the Hulk, the Hulk becomes mean when he gets Hulked out. Yeah. But they're, they stay nice. And the, no one turns green. That's true. Right. That's what's so great about these guys. Hey, um, so we, we've talked a lot today on the show. We've talked about cereals. We've talked about Peppa Le Pig. Peppa Le Pig. Peppa Pig. We've talked about don't hand your phone over to your kid. True. Or you'll get 47 years of locked out on your iPhone. Mm-hmm. That's a long time to wait without a phone. Be careful. We've talked about all that. Some people can't even wait 47 seconds. No, I know. Totally. Now what we got to talk about to wrap up the show is our hero. We always want to go to the hero. 30-year-old Nathan Wanhala of Santa Cruz is one of three men who wrestled a knife-wielding woman to the ground of a Greyhound bus and restrained her until help arrived. In a press conference Monday, Sheriff Mike Boudreau uh, reported that the bus was headed to Oakland from Las Vegas, making several stops along the way. He says just after 2 p.m., the suspect, Teresa Madrigal, turned violent. Sheriff Boudreau uh, said Madrigal grabbed a three-year-old around the neck and then held the child at knife point. That child's mother was stabbed as she tried to fight for her daughter. Sheriff Boudreau says that's when Juan Hala and two others, Spencer Williams and the bus driver, Mike Phillips, intervened by tackling the knife-wielding woman to the floor of the bus. She was restrained in uh, until sheriff's deputies arrived. The mother is out of surgery and expected to recover. The baby was not harmed. And uh, there you go. Three people step up to save the day. One of them, 30-year-old Nathan Wanhala. I'm telling you, folks, you never know when you're going to be called on to uh, step up and to play hero. Again, as we teach, though, throughout uh, the show, you don't always have to you know, risk your life to do it. Sometimes you just have to give your life and exercise some of your agency towards serving and caring, and, and especially those that you're uh, in charge of, those that you're responsible for in your life. Just be a better parent. That's what the show's about, to help you be the good in the world. We'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, BYU Sports Nation is up next.